Hello, I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 32, I think, yes? Ah, yes, okay, because the other one was split into two, 31 A and B. Um, special thanks to Peter Borud and Jacob Kinberg for being on the show. Uh, and a reminder to everybody that, uh, if you're not friends with me on Facebook, uh, Jacob's film Channel News is now available to purchase on DVD. Uh, I have links to that on the More Than One Lesson website uh, in the store section. So uh, go, you know, go and uh, go and buy it and support a, a filmmaker uh, who is uh, the film is very good. I really like it. You can see the trailer on the website, and uh, you know it's only twenty dollars plus shipping, and uh, it's really it's worth it. It's a good movie. So um, so yeah, thanks to them for being on the show, and uh, so now here's the deal. I have another friend with me here on the show. And uh, he's a little—he's a little nervous, and that's fine. I can be very intimidating. Uh, we are also both incredibly tired, uh, for one reason or another. Like he got very little sleep, and I also got very little sleep. Um, but uh, we're going ahead anyway, and we'll see how this turns out. Can I say hi yet? No, <laughs> I just interrupted you on your own show. Yeah, I know. Mm. I apologize. Carry uh, on. I guess I have to forgive you if you apologize. Such is the way. Um, okay, so my friend uh, Robert Hornack is here. Robert, how are you? I'm doing well. All right. Now, of course, those uh, who read the blog for more than one lesson uh, have probably read a couple of his entries. and uh, Mainly you... because there's only been a couple. Exactly. Thank you. I'm glad I you know. beat it, me to It's that. been a while. Yeah. Get with the program, buddy. I'm sorry. I know you're busy and all I that. have one brewing. Do you? All right. No, not really. <laughs> I think, I, yeah. I don't want to have to start assigning you uh, blog Will topics. you please? I yeah. respond to assignments. Do you? All right. I'll keep that in mind. Okay, good. All right. Um, I'm assigning you to write about the social network. I was wanting to see it this weekend. Well, all right then. Is this weekend this weekend? I may have already seen it. Ah, oh, jeez. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. So, I'm too aware. Okay, so that's Robert. Okay. He's just going to be like that the whole episode. <laughs> I'm afraid so. Um it's just and and given what today's topic is going to be, you may come to appreciate that uh, because it's kind of cut from the same cloth as the topic of our film uh, of our episode today. But before we do that, let's what get is to that know by the way? Woody Allen. But we'll get to that in a minute. Love Woody Allen. Let's talk about him. Dead <sighs> air. I love it. It's not. It's not dead air. If I'm sighing into the <laughs> mic, um, that's true. But let's let's uh, let's get to know you a little bit first, Robert. Gladly. You've listened to the show. You know how it works. I do know how it works. I have listened to several, more than several, more than one Lesson. show. Yes. yes. Okay. So I, I have listened to quite a few, and I enjoy it. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. That's not why I brought that up. I'm just saying. Okay. So here's <laughs> fishing for compliments. It's a it's that's an what art. it's all about. Yeah. You know what? I've already been nominated for a pretty much completely ahead, useless say award. Say it. The podcast award. I was, okay, great. I was nominated for a podcast award. Be proud. In the religion category, and I got beaten by an atheist podcast. Embrace so. your pride. Wait, <laughs> you got beat by an atheist podcast? Yeah. Why does it... The devil wins? I don't... Is that how... I guess so. I don't know. Wow. There's some atheists that listen to this. Be careful with your... Uh, okay, I will. With your, uh, you know, characterization of them. They're, they're good people. They are. Um, so, uh, so, Robert, let's get to know you a little bit. Gl- gladly. What would you, you like to know? I'll get there and so ask sorry. you the question. It's my very first time doing a podcast of any kind. I got news for you. Going to be your last. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, that relaxes me right away. Oh, okay. Fair enough. I should have told you that in advance. Good. Um, so you live here in Hollywood. I do. 
Um, Culver City. No, I'm sorry, Palms. 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 It's an important distinction because Culver City is cool. Is it? Well, compared to Palms. Oh, fair enough. Okay, there you go. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's all relative. It's like a subset of Culver City, I guess. Or maybe it's just on the outskirts of Culver City. At mm-hmm. any rate, it's Los Angeles. Yeah. But I don't like saying Los Angeles because it sounds so, I don't know, bleak for me. Oh, okay. But Palms, it's like it starts a conversation. It's like, Palms, where is that? And then, you, then you're in a conversation. Los Angeles is like, Yeah, oh, but yeah. the conversation pretty much goes, Palms, where is that? Los Angeles. Ah, oh, you're... <laughs> It just adds a step. You found the flaw <laughs> in my approach. But it does sound more luxurious. Ooh, palms. Mm. Is that like Palm Springs? Mm. No, it's not. No, not at all. But uh, so you live out here. Hot you, and flat. How, how, uh, how long have you lived out here? I've been in Los Angeles proper mm-hmm. for 10 years. Ten Make years. that 11. I'm sorry. You moved out here in uh, 1999, it sounds like. I moved out here in November of, of 98. Nine, okay, all right. So we can't really count 98. I start with 99. Okay. But we're almost done with 10, so that's 11. All right. Well, th- maybe you could be on a, on my new math podcast or something. <laughs> um, but uh, so where did you... Uh, <laughs> is having a little difficult time getting comfortable there. That's fine. Uh, so where did, you, uh, where did you originate? I guess that's a way of saying where are you from originally. My mother. Yeah. Um, well, I was born and raised in Louisiana. Louisiana. Or Louisiana, as we say, if you're from Louisiana. Yeah, but there's an I in there. There is an I in there. But, Louisiana is but what we're, it's... We're a, we, we like to take, you know, we, we, we like to relax. We relax our speech. We relax our politics. You sure do. I was, I'm glad you <laughs> um, went there because I was about to. <laughs> so uh, I was born and raised in mm-hmm. Bossier City, Louisiana, okay. yeah. which is right across the river from a town that a lot of people probably know more than that, which is Shreveport. Okay, yeah. Far northwest corner. Um and then moved away and at co- after college. Okay. Um, so I was there for all of my, most of my childhood and then all of my adolescence. And where was college? As I recall it. Um, Louisiana State University. Okay. Wait for it. Yep. Shreveport. Oh, <laughs> it no. wasn't the actual campus. You it had was, me, then you lost me. It was a little branch. Okay. Little, little cute little branch campus okay. up north. And that's where I went to college. And what did you uh, major in? <laughs> Funny enough, I majored in communication. I'm not sure how good it is to working for me today, but... Well, you know, uh, a lot of things can fall under that umbrella. Actual communication sure. could b- not be an option, you know? Well, my, my specific major was public relations. Really? Okay. Apparently, at that point in my life, I really felt the need to connect with the public and to relate to them in some way. So I spent four... Actually, I started in journalism. Oh, Okay. Because I thought that would be cool. Hey, yeah. that's right for a newspaper. And, and the fact that... Chicks dig journalists. Do they? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe that's why I switched to public relations. Cause there you go. At any rate, um, I found the journalism courses. Forgive me if anyone's listening from that that uh, program. But I, I just was not finding it very, very exciting. Mm-hmm. Or very... very uh, it, w- it wasn't a way for me to express myself in a way that I thought. It was very, very cut and dry. Here's the lead yeah. sentence. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah, yeah. So I moved to public relations, but here's the deal. I, w- I had my eye on the future. Okay. I was stuck in Louisiana. Eye on the prize. Maybe. I thought at the time. Okay. Um, my, my hope was to someday go to a film school, mm, and there were none at that time in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought if I could just get my, my communication degree and then go to one of these grad schools that I see offer... Um, courses or programs in filmmaking mm-hmm. that accept communication degrees, then I'll do that. So mm-hmm. 
I spent four years um, accumulating all the credits for a public, public relations degree that I knew in my heart that I would never use. Yeah. Um, but along the way, I I wrote for the school paper. Mm-hmm. Not not I wasn't on the beat. Okay. <laughs> I was I wrote a, a humor column. Or oh, okay. I called it a humor column. There you go. It was. It took and that's up the space. kind of humor you could find in that column. Sure. Okay. Um, was mine. Yeah. And so I did that for four years. It was that, and I also drew a comic strip. And I did that. And those are kind of the outside of meeting the friends that I, many of which I still have today. Um, that was the highlight of my entire college career. Okay. Was writing for the column, writing for the paper, and drawing this comic strip. Mm-hmm. Very fulfilling. Very yeah. fun. Which is interesting because I, th- I mean you're, I mean you're on the show today in the capacity of being a movie guy, a guy who really enjoys film. I do, and uh, and usually, I mean, when you run across somebody who is, has moved out to Hollywood to pursue that uh, writing or acting or any of the things, um, you will. Uh, Usually the the standard thing is that the person was a movie guy when they were, you know, they they started loving movies when they were probably 13, 14, uh and then they they usually go to college for that. Um were, were you a, a like a movie lover um went before college or did it come about afterwards? No, I was a movie lover from from a very early age. Okay. Uh I I got into special effects books when I was 7. Okay. You can believe that. Uh, the story I know you're is, a big fan of Ray Harryhausen. I am. The yeah. very first book I ever purchased with my own money was one that my mom said, you will buy that with your own money. And so oh, okay. I saved up money, and it was the uh, a, a book called From the Land Beyond Beyond, which hmm. uh, diehard Harryhausen fans will know as a quote from Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. Okay. So that oh, I'm just, I just painted myself the hugest nerd, didn't I? No, it's fine. Forgive me. It's fine. Um, but I am. Yeah. So it was accurate. So I bought the book, and... I was only seven, maybe eight, and so I was, I was kind of learning to read. The reason I bought the book was because it, it was filled with pictures of monsters. Yeah. I didn't know Harryhausen. I didn't know stop-motion animation. I didn't know any of that. It was just p- these pictures fascinated me. Mm-hmm. So I bought the book and devoured it over and over and over again and learned via this book the art of stop-motion animation. And I thought from a very early age, like 10, let's say, that for sure <laughs> – the, my life would end up me being a stop-motion animator of mm-hmm. some kind. Um, I, I loved those movies growing up. And yeah. it, it took until probably my teenage years before I really, really, really understood that there were movies other than monster movies or sci-fi movies yeah. or you know Godzilla movies, King Kong, Frankenstein, all of these. These were the movies that captured my imagination as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you ask a lot of a lot of guests or probably just in your life like how did you get into movies what was yeah. the first movie that started so many people say Star Wars yeah I remember seeing Star Wars when I was a kid I'm old enough that I can actually say that I went to the movies to see it when on its first run yeah um, and I went to see it because I remember in the trailer I was only I was really really young um, in the trailer there was a shot as I recall of of like a skeleton of a giant, what looked like a dinosaur on the hill. It was, as it turns out, it's it's the scene where C three PO and R two D two are on Tatooine, right? And they're walking down the hill, and there's like a a skeleton, a skeletal yeah. remain of something. That's what got me to go see the movie, or got me to talk to my parents into taking me to see the movie. Huh. Saw the movie. Don't remember seeing anything else from that movie except for that one shot, which is strange. Yeah. Um, later, of course, I learned to appreciate that movie and other movies um, of that ilk. But but it was it was giant monsters. 
and it was like Frankenstein, Universal films, horror films, and mm-hmm. those that really got, captured my imagination as a young kid. Yeah. And something happened, I think, around the time of... You can stop me at any time. I feel like I'm talking forever. It's fine. Go ahead. Um, uh, when E.T. came out, okay. um, I remember my parents taking me and my sister and brother to go see it. So we went to see E.T. I'd already heard some about it. Um, spoilers. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one spoiled, uh, no one gave me the spoiler alert when they told me that E.T. dies. Yeah. So when in the very first time, I still remember the kid's name too. I won't say it here. Okay. Um, he told me that E.T. dies, uh, but went into the movie and just bawled my eyes out. Yeah. It became instantly my favorite movie that I'd ever, had, had seen up to that point. Yeah. I... It was it was a long run. It was like a year long run. During that year, mm-hmm. I recall seeing the movie four more times by myself. Mm-hmm. I was eleven or twelve, so I guess I either got dropped off or somebody took me. But I remember paying for it with my own money. So I guess no one else in the family was like, "Ah, we've seen that. That's enough for me." Yeah, yeah. But I I was so captured by the story. Um, That's eighty two, right? So how old were you roughly? I was eleven. So 11. I was. I, I mean that. It's kind of a tell right there. I mean, I'm, yeah. I was the the same age as as Elliot in mm-hmm. that movie. And so I, I just really took to his story of kind of feeling alone, you know, needing a friend, all that kind of stuff. I had friends. Yeah. And I was, wasn't really alone all that much. But I guess mm-hmm. maybe inside I kind of had that feeling. So I just really, really connected with the story. And I can still remember. I can't remember every time I went to see it as a kid. But I remember being in the theater when the music goes down at the end and you hear weeping. Yeah, in the crowd, and then the music comes back up when the credits come back come up. Yeah, um, I still remember that feeling and that and that um, just that feeling of connecting with an audience with a movie that I already loved. Yeah, it was just a, it was kind of an eye opening moment, and also the movie is just brilliant. I don't know. What E.T. really is a wonderful movie, and I and I do feel like there's a lot of people that. Uh, like honestly, like myself, that for years kind of distanced themselves from it, and some of it, like as far as film nerds go, it might have to do with distancing yourself from Spielberg a little bit as just this commercial filmmaker, and how could a commercial filmmaker possibly be good? Sure. Um, and of course, E.T. was like his most commercial film because it's for the whole family, and uh, and yet you know, would say it's his most personal film, at least up to that point for sure. Yeah, and it, it's Which really is- fascinating to me, and so like, uh, so I think. I kind of, I didn't, I didn't demonize the film, but I was just like, yeah, E.T., who cares? And then I saw it again. I saw it at, uh, at a movie in the park in Chicago, and uh, there were thousands, hmm. you know, thousands of people there. And wow. it was wonderful, and it was a great print, and it was beautiful. And when I watched it, I was just like, this is amazing. Yes. Like, and I couldn't stop crying, and I was, you know, I was probably 23, 24 at the time. <laughs> and I was just like, this thing is really one of the best movies ever made. I mean, I, I have no doubt of that. I'd have to agree. And um, It is, I have to say, there's a caveat to saying that, for mm-hmm. me anyway, because I still hold on to some of that, of what you were talking about, where it's like you don't really want to claim it as one of the greatest films because it is right. almost crassly commercial because of how successful it was. But it didn't yeah. start out that way. It started out as something he just wanted to make. It's a very yeah. personal movie. But um, It even manages to do product placement well. Reese's Pieces. Absolutely. And it's and it feels totally organic. Yeah, you don't even think about it. Yeah, man, oh man, I'm sorry. Go on. No, it's uh, it it's an exceptionally manipulative movie. Yeah, I mean everything about it is geared toward we will make you feel bad for what's happening right now, or sad, <laughs> you know, yeah. or make you connect. It's yeah. the music, it's uh, it's everything about it is just like 
you, you you will cry at the end of this movie. Basically. It's manipulative, I think, in all the best ways. There's a way for a mm. film to be cynically manipulative. That's true. And then there's one that is sincerely manipulative. And I think this one is sincerely yeah. manipulative because it's just like, I really want people to connect with these characters emotionally, which means I really need to give thought right. to the music and, and the cutting and the pacing and all that sort of thing so that they can connect emotionally. Right. Because if you can connect emotionally, then you can, of course, connect uh, intellectually. I'm, that's, that's on my mind uh, because of uh, a recent BP episode that hasn't aired yet um, mm-hmm. about the, uh, the way emotion and intellect uh, connect with each other and th- the film-going experience. Well, they, they more often than not battle each other. Uh, yes, unfortunately. And uh, the two can go together very well, uh, but few filmmakers pull, can pull it off, and I think Spielberg can, absolutely, can. and certainly in that movie. But the movie, the reason I went to see the movie, I was excited about the movie less because it was Spielberg, mm-hmm. um, more because there was a little alien in it. And I yeah. was all about sci-fi. I was about um, when I there was a show on Sunday mornings uh, that, that I would watch. It was a movie, it was a, an entertainment geared show. I think it was called. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't remember what it was. Anyway, that's not beside the point. We would watch this before we go, went to church. And I, as I'm walking out the door, my dad was still there. Um, I heard on the TV that there was this movie coming out from Spielberg, and they, had, they were designing it, de- designing the alien and building it on an armature. Well, the word armature is like a buzzword for me at the time because armature mm-hmm. is the skeleton inside of a stop-motion character. Yeah. Um, and I thought, well, that's a movie for me. So I yeah. started reading up on it and... Uh, and I, I re- recalled, I knew that Spielberg had made Close Encounters, which I liked, you know, loved. I didn't understand it at the time. Yeah. Um, just being a little kid. But, of course, I got into the, the, the beauty of the lights and all that stuff. But the, the little stop-motion alien that comes out of the end and kind of yeah. greets him with the hand signal, I was all over that. So you can see I was sort of like one-track-minded in terms of what I was letting um, entertain me at the mm-hmm. time. Uh, meanwhile, I was also into kind of as an extension of of the like universal horror film love. I was, my dad would let me kind of watch anything. And I, I watched the thing, the John Carpenter thing oh my. when I was, that was like 82, I think. Yeah. So I was 11. Too then, young, too. too young to watch that movie. I might've been 12 or 13 because still too young. I'd say <laughs> because it, it was on HBO. I'm sure it's when I saw it. Yeah. Um, but I was deeply fascinated, mm-hmm. uh, maybe unnaturally fascinated by the gore in that movie. It was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. Yeah. And the head sliding off the tables and the weird spider creature coming out of the head. Yeah. And, all of that stuff just really, really got my imagination. You can look at, I've still got like the old, um, I hate talking about myself so much. That's fine, go ahead. Um, thank you very much. You're going to make it. I will, thank you. Uh, solipsistically, I will make it. Uh, <laughs> thank you for that as well. Go ahead. So, I, you, can, you can look at my old, note, old drawing tablets, and I've got... Mm-hmm drawings of heads sliding off of tables and stuff and just like yeah. gore and gross. So there was like a, a shift from the innocence of Harryhausen to... I think, I think any teenage boy that can draw is going to draw in unspeakable violence. I yeah. usually did. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> if you have the ability to draw and you are between the ages of 10 and 14, yeah. that's probably what you're going to draw. Carnage. Absolute carnage. And then, of course, your teacher's like, well, I'm a little worried about Tyler. Yes. No, don't be worried. It's yeah. just the thing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But um, so I, I won't transition quite into the topic yet. I think we will wind up taking a break. But um, but you uh, so when you went to co- I mean, you, you loved movies, uh, but you did not think of doing it like as a thing in college, like as, no, as I majoring was, it. Because of Spielberg, I yeah. mean, because of E.T., I, I fell in love with anything Spielberg. Okay. And so I wanted to be a director. You know, okay. I didn't even know what a director was yeah. when I was a freshman in high school. I just wasn't. 
I wasn't reading the right books or magazines or whatever it was, but I yeah. just didn't know what that meant. Like, what's the difference between a director and a producer? I, I was literally blank on that. Yeah. Um, and so, I but I knew that Spielberg was a director, and so I wanted to do what he did. Yeah. So let's do that. Let's go for that. So I would tell all my friends. In fact, if in my yearbooks, you know, you can see like people writing, uh, "Congratulations, Robert, on a year well spent." You know, "Good luck in Hollywood when you're a director." You know, yeah, this yeah. is like my tenth grade yearbook, and I to that point I didn't know how to get there didn't know really what a director did specifically mm-hmm. um i just knew that i want to make something like et i want to do that yeah. or even something like seventh voyage is Sinbad or any of those movies you know i just want to do that but it transitioned during that time from 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 being deeply fascinated by stop motion photography and doing that for a living to just working in movies specifically being a director mm-hmm. um and during that time, just to continue talking about myself ad nauseum, fine. Um, I also learned that I could, to I guess to put it humbly, you know, I, I learned that I could put words together in a way that people like to read. Mm-hmm. Um, a story which I won't tell you, but I, it was just kind of an epiphany that happened, and um, I started writing stuff, and I enjoyed getting feedback from people like saying, "This is something you do well. Why don't yeah, you yeah. do this more?" And so all of it sort of kind of came to a head. Uh, toward the end of high school, I was like, I I was learning what what uh, your directors do. I was thinking, well, maybe I can do that. I don't really know, but let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that I love to write, and I knew that I love to draw. So I thought, well, so one of these is going to pan out at some point, in some way, somehow. And I just sort of kept following that, just following the breadcrumbs. Hmm. And so, so we already covered uh, college, doing the. The PR yeah. thing, public relations. <laughs> I loved it. Um, oh, no question about it. And uh, and so you got out uh, of college, and uh, and then you decided, uh, well, this thing that I just spent four years on uh, isn't for me. I'm no, going to do something not, else. It wasn't that at all. It was. Okay. I, I kind of knew long before I finished college that this was not for me. Okay. Um, I knew that th- I needed the communication degree because I, right. I fa- had found a inexpen- an inexpensive. Um, film school on the east coast called regent university which is a christian school okay which uh, you may know some folks from mm-hmm. there um i thought i can go there it looks like a really great program um i already oh, no i don't I didn't i didn't know anybody there mm-hmm. i just kind of went on faith that this was going to be something that was going to be cool something that i could uh learn more uh uh specifically what it is that i can do in that world because i didn't really have any of those opportunities in louisiana at the time louisiana's changed there's a big film community that community there now mm-hmm. That just was not there at all at the time. So I went, learned some stuff, wrote some stuff, made some stuff, made great friends I still have today. Mm-hmm. Some of them are in town. Yep. And uh, and here we are. And so uh, right now we do need to uh, to keep moving. I want to try and keep the kind of the intro part under uh, a half hour if possible. But I um, apologize. It's perfectly fine. I I myself, you know I. I am fascinated by the origin story of when people, you know, quote unquote, fall in love mm-hmm. with film. You know, the like the movie that did it because, you know, everyone's story is a little bit different. You know, I mean, everyone, almost everyone will say like, yeah, Star Wars and blah. Of a certain age, will say Star Wars and and or Jaws or E. T. or something. Almost always going to be some kind of Sp- or Raiders or some mm-hmm. kind of Spielberg thing. Um, but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to me, your obsession with uh, Harryhausen and stop motion is very interesting because mm-hmm. that's, uh, and it might have to do with the fact that you are, you know, you are a little bit older than than I am, and so you were exposed to movies that it took me a while to find, mm-hmm. um, and so 
I would say I liked them, but they were not formative in my love of film because I just found them a little bit later. So like right. uh, Jason and the Argonauts and such. Well, obviously I'm not as old <laughs> as Jason and the Argonauts or any right, Harry right. Hausman no, movie, no. Really, except for Clash of the Titans. Yeah, but it was still, I think, a little bit more in in the consciousness of of uh, the public. You know, sure. 10 years can make a difference. And so like, right. so like I was only born, I was born seven years after Jaws, but it, I think like when I when I was a kid, maybe when I turned like four or five, I think they like they just started. They maybe had just gotten the license, like show it on TV, hmm. so they showed it all the time. Right, and that's the thing is because it was about a ten year thing. There, I think they started doing that more and more. And if I had been born ten years before, it might have been. A, you know, a movie that was made ten years before that, right, or something like that. So. Uh, so yeah, for me it was it was movies like like Jaws and Star Wars, movies of the seventies, um, hmm. that were made nonetheless before I was born. Sure. So uh, so no, I'm fascinated by stories like that because everybody's is just a little bit different, and uh, like there's usually a common thread, but the the subtle variations in each person is is fascinating to me. Um, but you're out here now, and you've had and and you currently work on a television show. I do. Called. Crime Scene Investigation Miami. Yes. Colon Miami. Uh, indeed, yes, absolutely. <laughs> there is a colon in there. Yeah. CSI is what it's called. Uh, I prefer... I, I want to... Uh, I've been listening to way too much Never Not Funny because Jimmy Pardo likes to say everything all the way through. Right. And, uh, no and abbreviations. So, no abbreviations. No thank you. Okay. Uh, but CSI Miami, you've been, you, you work there. I do. I and, did. And I uh, have. What was that? Nothing. I have. I do work yeah, there. Yeah, indeed. You've worked... Do work and will continue to work there. Uh, yes, for the foreseeable future, That's as long the as they'll have me. Yeah, there you go. Um, and uh, what uh, what do you do there? Currently, I'm what they call a script coordinator. Okay. Um, that's kind of a, a nebulous, uh, non-specific sort of term. For, yeah, for it feels like a lot of things could fit into that. Yeah, and sometimes it does, but more often than not, it's me uh, editing scripts that come from the writers. I'm in mm-hmm. the writers' department. The writers will send a script to me to make sure it's perfect for the production, yeah. and then I send it to production. So I'm kind of a like a go-between or a fulcrum, if you will, between okay. the two different departments. Um, there's a lot of clearance stuff, like like uh, legal stuff, like with names. I help mm-hmm. help them come up with names. It's it's all very, it can be tedious, yeah, yeah, um, and monotonous. But it's uh, it's also very exciting because for whatever you think of the show, it's it's a huge show, and it's like front row big time TV you know yeah. so it's like very educational and the writers to a, to a person are all extremely accessible and yeah and good people um, so it's a, it's a really great job I started out on the show as a researcher mm-hmm. and did that for a year then I was a, a director's assistant on set for mm-hmm. one for season two then I was not there for a season and a half then I came back okay. when my friend who was moving up to become a writer said will you take my job and I said yes because I mm-hmm. wanted it so, and it's uh, and it's interesting to me because uh, not long ago, you uh, you were able to you were tapped to write a whole episode yes. of CSI Miami right and uh, which strikes me as interesting because, um, you know, one of the things that I've heard about Hollywood and working in Hollywood is unless you can be working as close as possible to a certain job. But no one will ever see you in terms of that job. Like you, you can work in the writers' department, sure. But 
m- no one will ever see you as a viable option for writing something. So it was Happens really a lot. Yeah, and it, and it really is interesting to me uh, that you were able to 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 get that. I mean, an entire episode. That's, that's well, really it's amazing. it's it's a uh, it's testament to the generosity of of the writers and mm-hmm. and the showrunner to have have given me that opportunity, and it was a mm-hmm. wonderful. Uh, learning experience. I mean, I, I was there, had already been doing my current job for a couple of years, three yeah. years, and they offered it to me. And so I, I thought, this is going to be easy because I've read every draft of every script. I know the characters in and out. I know how they talk. I know how the scenes play out. Mm-hmm. I, I got in the room, you know, and they broke the story. The story was already kind of there when I got in there. And then we, we all broke the story together. And mm-hmm. then I'm sent off to write my draft, and it's like, okay, I can do this. You sit down. It's just like any other writing assignment or writing thing that you have in your head. Yeah. You got a blank page, and it's extremely difficult because now, even though I had a grasp, I felt like, on the characters, it's making it sound like every script that I had read. Right. And it, it just it was very difficult. And yeah. But got it done. It was on the air. You know, mm. just a, a very, very... What was the name of the episode? <laughs> it's called In Plain Sight. In plain sight. Featuring, you might guess, an airplane. Yeah. Plane, I assume, is spelled differently. P-L-A-N-E. Indeed. It's a pun. Yeah, got, thank you. <laughs> did you come up with the title? I'm afraid I did. <laughs> Doesn't it sound like me? It kind of does, and that's yeah. uh, what makes it so infuriating. Um, <laughs> but uh, and, and I do want to continue down this line uh, just, just for a couple minutes. Okay. Um, because you mentioned that your familiarity familiarity with the characters seems as if it's like, oh, this is going to be great, and it's going to be kind of no problem. Yeah. But it is amazing how, you're, though you are incredibly familiar with the characters, they did not originate with you. Exactly. And I th- it seems to me that would be the key difference, because you may be as familiar as possible, but unless you are the one that first envisioned what, this, what drives this character, like... You, it's almost like you're only looking on the from the outside. Well, you know. that's exactly right, and that's why it's difficult for me to ever think about writing somebody else's idea as a script, mm-hmm. like taking an assignment, uh, like say in the film world, you you mm-hmm. get in that world and they say, hey, you write this, you give us your treatment. I've got a friend who's doing that now and doing it brilliantly. Mm-hmm. But when I think about doing that, I think that's that sounds really difficult because when I sit down, it's easy to give dialogue like Woody Allen does to every mm-hmm. character all the time, every time. Yeah, it's of you. It's it's you. Uh, when you sit down with characters that have been around for at that point seven full seasons, it is difficult. But the the, the key the key difference or the key problem with uh, sitting down to write it wasn't that in this case. It was it was what every writer on that show in any season has had a problem with, which is you've got to get that information out. Yeah, it's a forensic show for yeah. my sake. So you got to get the clues out. You got to have them talking about the clues, but you also have to make them sound real doing that yeah. and give them character beats of some kind in any given scene that's what was hard because there's so much information i don't know if you you know whoever's seen the show knows that they're just constantly spitting out this does this and the scientific fact this and yeah all that so it, you you have to put that, that that's the stuff that, that bottom line has to be in there mm-hmm. the uh character stuff is sort of extra you know yeah. but you want that in there too and making that work was was the <laughs> I, it became evident to me that that was the problem when I got notes on the first draft and the second yeah. draft even was like this still sounds stilted, you know it doesn't sound like you're really integrating the, the characters into what they have to say. That was hard. Was it? I mean, something like that would be, you know, I can imagine that if it if it were me in that situation, I'd be kind of devastated because like now's 
you know, hmm. kind of now is my big chance. It does feel that way at the time, yes. And then suddenly you get a whole bunch of other writers yeah. saying, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, you got to rewrite it. Okay, I've rewritten it. Nope, not even that. Yep. And just like, oh, <laughs> I, I've blown it. You know? Yeah, I, I felt that way for a, a solid week. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, the, the way it goes is at some point they have to give it to one of the other writers to mm-hmm. do a draft. Because it's not because you're bad. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, you're a terrible writer. That's how you feel if you're the writer in that scenario. Mm-hmm. But um, there has to be somebody who has used who's used to doing those things and integrating all that and making mm-hmm. it flow. They have to do it because at some point it has to go over to production and they have to actually shoot the thing. Yeah. So and it can't be the clunky to use Pardo's word. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, you know, script that I've written. Mm-hmm. I got an incredible opportunity to write two full drafts and then help with the writing of the rest of it. Yeah. But. Man, they I I learned to respect those writers even more than I already did yeah. during those few weeks. It was just but being on set was fantastic. It was as the writer because yeah. Half the time the the actors don't know that you your name is is plastered across the front page. Yeah. They don't know that you didn't write every single word and come up with every idea. So <laughs> so they might they might come to you and say, "Well, what does this mean or how does this fit into dot dot dot?" And I found that I knew those answers because I'd been around the writers and yeah, yeah. I just kind of I kind of knew how to do that. Now it really sounds like I'm talking about myself. It's fine. I I asked you about yourself, Robert. You it's did. Fine. You're um, at fault here. Yeah, uh, yeah. I guess so. You're the guest. It's an interview. Okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> interview. But it's uh, yeah. It does seem like man. It just I can't imagine. I can't imagine the the stress of it. And of course. Uh, there's such an uh, an amazing payoff when it finally comes time to shoot the thing and all that. Absolutely, I remember um, the first day. Just it's it's like any other experience. A writer tells you where they they've written something, then an actor gets it. Whether this is on stage mm-hmm. in a short you're shooting or on a big TV show, it's it's the same feeling. It's like yeah. the words are living. You know, even if it's CSI Miami, it feels that way. It's like oh my gosh, there's an actor saying those words that I put down on a piece of paper. And it's oh like, yeah, wow. I mean, that was the very first thing when when I wrote. Uh, for my TV video staff in high school, uh, and I had done some like s- short skits and stuff for church before then, but like I wrote something, I directed it, and now people in the school were watching it, and I was fascinated. It's like the it's it's such a cliche thing to say. The contents of my head are now being <laughs> vi- you know physically watched by yeah. other people. And that it's such a f- weird concept to think of. It's a heady feeling, and it's yeah. uh, it's it can be addictive. I think very much so. Yeah. I mean, I had a similar experience with some smaller things that I'd done, mm-hmm. and just kind of showing them to groups of friends or their friends or whatever, and just kind of sitting back in the back and watching them watch. Yeah. It's like you feel. I don't want to say that you feel important. I guess it depends on your your character going mm-hmm. into the whole thing, but you you do feel a certain sense of I created this. It's mine, and now yeah. they can consume it. And if they hate it, then, well, they, of course they have the right to hate it. Yeah, <laughs> but you feel like they're hurting you because oh, very much you. so. Yeah, I um, mean that's it's how I, f- I it's how I feel about both my podcasts because if hmm. they reject, I mean it's my opinion Absolutely. and the way I'm expressing it. So I mean it's even it's even more direct than that. Yeah. So if they hate the show. They, it is a rejection of me. Tyler, you know? I want you to know right now, yes. I like both of your podcasts. Thank you, Robert. You're very welcome. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it, is a, it is a gambit uh, when you mm-hmm. are putting yourself out there, especially in a, in a purely creative sense, like writing um, or directing or acting or, or, or editing, I would say. Um, and so it's, uh, are there any uh, 
if you're uncomfortable answering this, we can cut it out. Um, <laughs> I doubt it. Are you going to be? Uh, is there any plans to for you to be writing another episode anytime uh, in the future? It's all you know, whatever's in the wind at the time. I mean, they, okay. the thing is that the the write the writing staff is obligated by Writers Guild rules. Yeah. To give out a couple of uh, freelance episodes, just oh, okay. the way it works. So mine happened to be last season. Just it was their generosity for sure. But mm-hmm. I mean, because they could have given it to anybody. Um, they've already given out two this season. Oh, okay. So I doubt that I'll get one this season, mm-hmm. um, which is fine. I mean, yeah. And then is there is there also any, any possibility of you becoming one of the staff writers or anything like that? Um, that it's, it, uh, there's no way to answer that. I okay. mean, it, there's a there's a, a staff that's locked in now. They've been there for two seasons fully. Okay, yeah. Most of them have been there for many seasons. Yeah. So it's just a matter of how well did I do on that episode? You know. Right. Plus, um, when will someone leave the show? Yeah. Plus, uh, do they remember my name? You know, all those things you think yeah. about, like, when you're, you're when you're not on staff, you think, well, do they even know who I am or what I want to do? Yeah. You know, all that stuff. Well, clearly they know what I want to do, but I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't think I've ever been one to, to hang my hopes on such things. You know, I, yeah. I, I'm in an incredibly great position. A lot of people might kill you know, mm-hmm. to, to be a script coordinator on such a big show. Yeah. Um, and they might have a lot more ambition about it. Like, oh, I'm yeah, here. Yeah. Here's the, the the machinations I can operate. You know, I can, I can be Machiavellian about it, you know, and like take them down, you know, and make them make myself known and be political about it. But I, I really like those people too much to be that way toward them. Yeah. And they've given me this opportunity. And so it's like, why would I become that guy? Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe okay. I'm a, a wimp. I don't know. Well, I mean, there's no question about that. But, like, <laughs> you know, I'm just uh, saying. Thank just, you for uh, validating my weakness. No problem, buddy. Uh, I, mine's validated all the time. <laughs> um, okay, well, we're going to take a break. And when we, uh, when we come back, we will um, be talking about uh, writer and director Woody Allen. And actor Woody actor. Allen. Yes. Um, and, uh, yeah, we'll be, we'll be kind of going back a little bit and discussing your initial love of Woody Allen and that sort of thing. Okay. Uh, but we'll do that when we come back, so uh, stay tuned. Maybe we're recording. Are we recording? Not yet. Okay. I mean, it's recording, but, but you'll, we'll cut this out. You will dismiss this from the timeline. There, keep talking. You will dismiss this from the timeline. Check, check. Hello, hello. Check, check. check. Oh, sorry. Okay, we're good. Check. All right. 40 minutes. And we're back. Hi. Robert, how you doing? I'm well. All right, that was a good break. Yes. Got a little water. Yeah. Took a little antihistamine. Let's yeah, see. we'll see how that works out. I know. I'm allergic so. to, to Tyler's cat. Yes. Which, by the way, can I say that, that there's like a, a demystification happening right now? Oh, okay. Yeah, because, you know, like when I'm at home, 
I'm listening to the podcast in the comfort of my own home. Yeah. Sometimes I need something extra mentally to keep me engaged. Okay. And so I, I'll picture you and whoever you're talking to, I don't know, in like maybe a, a glass encasement at the top of the Empire State Building or or maybe uh, the desert, you know, just something something interesting. Maybe this was my favorite. The uh, the the, the two dimensional square that the bad guys in Superman Two are in. I picture you guys in that, and it helps me to enjoy the show. That's all I'm saying. But now I can't do that. It's completely de- demystified. I'm holding a microphone. Oh, don't worry. No one else is enjoying the show either. <laughs> There's a cat that I'm allergic to. There's an antihistamine that could kick in, could kick in at any moment. Yeah, we'll see how this works out. And we're about to talk about a man who's made forty movies ish. Yeah. And we're going to try to narrow that down into some themes, et cetera. That's, that's difficult to do. Yeah, but you know what? It's, uh, we'll see how this goes as far as uh, length. And uh, All right. I'm fine with it being shorter than you think. I'm fine with it being longer than you think. You know what I mean? Awesome. So um, that's why we had the break in there. Um, Good. So here's the deal, uh, everybody. Uh, in spite of, and this is, this is what's fascinating to me, is that you mentioned uh, in the first section... Uh, your love of Ray Harryhausen and yes. monster movies and all of that. Still love it. And ha- you, Yes, you do. However, as time has gone on, when I think of, you know, whenever you and I talk, I think of the filmmakers you like. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, I mean, in many ways, they're miles away from that. <laughs> miles. Including, miles. including the guy. Ga- what was that? Planets. I just said the word planets. They're planets away. Sorry. Man, I can't wait for that uh, for that pill to kick in. So <laughs> maybe I can just <laughs> have a moment's peace. Okay, um, but uh, so the guy that we're not really profiling, but the guy that we're talking about today, his name is Woody Allen. All right, and Woody Allen is one of your favorite filmmakers, if not your favorite. Would you say? I would say he is not my favorite filmmaker. Okay, but he's I, up there. He's way up there because yeah. I, I because he has such a long track record of making movies that I've enjoyed. Yes. By virtue of just that alone. Okay. Of course, he's one of my favorite filmmakers. But he could that sounded not... really defensive. I apologize. Uh, excuse me, Tyler. He is not my favorite. <laughs> um, but it's fine. It's, and uh, But he's a guy that, uh, I mean, he, some of his films can get a little ambitious, but they certainly don't have uh, monsters in them. No, or, they don't. Or, uh, you know, stop motion animation or any, any of the stuff that you grew up really loving and uh, even in high school saying like this is what I want to do uh, at some point in my life or right. whatever uh, and so I'm, I find myself wondering uh, before we really jump into kind of the stuff that he that he discusses in his films before we jump into that uh, how on earth did you find Woody Allen and how did you be- come to become Gosh, uh, such a fan that's an interesting question because I've been thinking about that actually for the last week because I I didn't know I have no pr- prepared questions handed to me. That's fine. Sorry. Uh, no, it's fine. Uh, but more I, of a discussion is the idea. I kind of assumed that that might be a, a good question to ask. And so yeah. I've been thinking about it. I have no answer. I can't remember when it was. All I can remember is that after I learned that I enjoyed writing, um, I knew that I... I mean, I, I gravitated toward funny movies mm-hmm. also, and I gravitated toward you know, comedians. I, I just ate comedians up. You know, it was like yeah. I just loved stuff back then. Uh, so today too but i i wanted to write funny and so i was on on the prowl for funny writers mm-hmm. and meanwhile i was drawing and i loved mad magazine yeah and i was learning i was trying to learn how to do caricatures and one of the caricatures 
that I, I enjoyed drawing was Woody Allen because he's, he's easy. I mean, he's got the glasses, he's got the hair, he's thin, he's small, all that yeah. kind of stuff. So he, he's just an easy guy to draw. And so I, I would just kind of doodle Woody Allen. I would doodle Groucho Marx for the same reason. Um, but but I, I think it's a kind of a weird backdoor way to, to you know get into Woody Allen's movies. Yeah. But that's, that's what it was. Woody Allen, before he was a filmmaker, as everyone knows, um, I assume... Mm-hmm. Maybe not. If you don't, here it is. Okay. He was uh, a comedian, stand-up comedian, and he was uh, a writer of essays, humorous essays, humorous mm-hmm. pieces for, among many other magazines, mostly the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Um, where he and you had yourself a, a humor column there, and I did. And yeah. so I was like, if I'm going to emulate anyone in in my my column, what I'm trying to do, mm-hmm. not that I was trying to do anything, but you know what I mean, just yeah. trying to make people laugh. Um, I want to learn from the best or copy the best. Yeah. At that stage in your life, you can kind of get away with that. Yeah. And man, did I try to get away with it. The tone, you know, some of the subject matter, just like, not word for word by any means, but you learn structure. You learn comic structure in an essay format. Yeah. That way. And that's how I did it. So I, I bought Getting Even and Side Effects and uh, Without Feathers, all these, mm-hmm. the, the three uh, Woody Allen books at the time, compilations of stuff that he had written for magazines. Mm-hmm. And, they were and are to me some of the finest comic writing that I've ever seen. Not all of it, obviously, but some of it is just well, well above things you might find just randomly somewhere else in the humor section, for instance, mm-hmm. at Barnes and Noble. Um, it's just really good, really precise. You knew he knew what he was trying to do, and he did it. Yeah. And his turns of phrase, his references. Um, I learned a lot <laughs> yeah. just by reading these kind of silly knockoff almost um comic essays by woody allen you know he'd, he'd drop um you know philosophers names other writers names i'd go looking for who they were that's how i was introduced to a lot of stuff that maybe in if i was paying more attention in school maybe i'd learn there mm-hmm. but um did my voice just crack it did yes that's awesome it's it's, it's fine <laughs> um i am hearkening back to my teenage days so maybe there i'm just you, exactly. like back in character yeah um sense memory sense memory totally um so I I would read those, uh, I would digest them, and then spit them back out as my own thing. Mm-hmm. And that turned into writing scripts, you know, and I uh, just yeah. kept writing. But but that's I, I, I kind of got into Woody Allen from his writing mm-hmm. before I got into his movies. I think the first movie I saw was probably not until I was 17 or 18. Yeah. And it was, I remember, it was USA Channel. They were showing like three or four in a row. Mm-hmm. It was a Midsummer Night Sex Comedy. Okay. Uh, it was... Uh, I think Bullets Over Broadway. Okay. There's a couple more. But those were, oh, Love and Death was that day. And I I had a VCR in my room, and I recorded Hmm. this stuff and would watch it over and over again and just ate it up. I loved his persona. Mm -hmm. I loved his references. Everything I liked about his writing was evident in his movies, but but the movies were a thing of themselves. And I just, I dove right in, and I loved it. He is one of those rare writers that... uh, I mean, there there are some you know novelists or even or even nonfiction uh, writers that will, um, or essayists who will, you see who they are in the stuff they write about, but yeah. then there are some. But ultimately, as far as style, it's kind of not necessarily bland, but it's uh, kind of generic. I know sure. that sounds terrible, but like, uh, but then there are some writers that that. They fi- they have such a definite voice. Mm-hmm. Um, they're like this. This couldn't possibly be anybody else. That's right. Um, one of the people I can think of off the top of my head is like a Hunter S. Thompson, sure, or something yeah. like that. Um, 
and uh, and of course with with humor there's a lot of poss- I mean it's I feel like if somebody is trying to be funny that means they have to tap into their own sense of humor right. so so their their voice is going to be a lot clearer I think um, but yeah Woody Allen is uh, he's a filmmaker that he's he's hit and miss with me and even some of his movies that I acknowledge are very good uh, still bother me sure yeah. uh, but. Uh, there is no question that he has such a definite voice and and is so... This is going to sound strange given what... You know, I, I assume if you listen to the show, you might know a little bit about Woody Allen and, and you know that he tends to be a rather neurotic person. But it's fascinating because a guy that is as self-questioning as Woody Allen is is a remarkably sure of himself mm-hmm. when it comes to the style in which he's going to write. It's like there's no question in his mind that this is how I need to write. You know, and it, he's, he's kind of a, this weird paradox uh, to me in that sense. That um, he's confident yet questioning. Yeah. I mean, it really, uh, this is going to sound very strange and maybe a little self-serving, but uh, uh, full disclosure, I've been going to a uh, counselor lately to deal with uh, issues of uh, stress and, you know, all the stuff that you deal with. you know you can always talk to me. I've oh man no that will only cause more stress <laughs> but uh, but anyway so I you know it's uh, I don't think there's certainly anything wrong with that and just uh, kind of a good way to let off steam and um, and my counselor once he commented he's like you know it's it's fascinating that you're somebody who you're constantly questioning yourself but you still have two you know two podcasts in which you're putting yourself out there he says that's a, a really it's very contradictory mm-hmm. you know and i feel like that about woody allen so yes i i'm comparing myself to woody allen which is a ridiculous thing that's to say. awesome but um i think that's true of any, i'm sorry to interrupt you but it seems fine. like that would be true of virtually any artist possibly yes you know the reason that they are creating is because they're trying to figure something out yeah a lot of the time there's also commerce you know you're making something to make some money yeah um but but you start down that road to begin with because there are questions you have and you've found that this is a way you can find the answer yeah. or hopefully or at least aim toward the answer. And I think this might be a good way to get into one aspect of Woody Allen. All right. Because what what Robert and I decided to do is we wanted to talk about Woody Allen because he's a filmmaker that is remarkably philosophical mm-hmm. um, and is interested in uh, exploring certain themes and a lot and it can be boiled down to like I believe four uh, essentially is what we what we talked Was about. Was it four? Or, Whoops. I've got three. Three, okay. Because you know what? It was four, but one can kind of be rolled into the other, I believe, when we we talked about there being four. Okay. Um, But one of the things that that is interesting, uh, and this will get into one of the themes in regards to art, um, and specifically movies in general, because he he often makes movies about movies in some way, shape, or form, whether it be a movie that's really self-aware or a character who decides that you know what i may not have a lot of things figured out in this life but i love film and that's right. that is my religion and religion's another thing but we'll get into uh, we'll get into that later um and that is to me what's fascinating because anybody who you mentioned you know any any artist or any creative type person uh you will find that strange contradiction and i think woody allen really puts it out there that a guy as as neurotic as as that for him there is no question the one thing he can hang his hat on, the one thing that he is absolutely sure of is that he loves this and he has to do this. And it's a really fascinating thing because, and maybe you were the same way, when I was younger, 
uh, and I'm sure I, I feel like most creative people who are pursuing it uh, probably have a similar story where you do something that the world views as very unlikely that you're going to succeed. And it is very unlikely that you're going to succeed in this. Sure. But yeah. you, you're following it. And some people say like, wow, I really, you know, I really admire you for doing that. And I, I, I remember my church in, in, in Missouri, there are some people that they're always very encouraging and they're like, wow, you're going to Chicago to study film and then you're going to go out to Los Angeles. Like, that's really, you know, that's really something. And I remember at the time being like, it, it, I guess it is something, but it's the only thing I can do. Like, mm. I feel as if I have no choice. It's the one thing I'm sure about is that this is what I have to do. You have to be careful, though, when you when who you tell that you had no choice. Yeah, because it can sound exceptionally pretentious. It it's can, like all yeah. the gods have have uh, given yeah. me this gift and I must do it. Well, my thing was it's the only thing I can do. Literally, it's the only thing I know how to do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What am I going to go be a mechanic? I felt Come the on. same way um, yeah. coming out of college and going into film school. Um, I knew that this was pretty much the only thing that I had the attention span to to really pursue because mm-hmm. it was something that I, it, it was part of my blood mm-hmm. from such an early age in whatever form that took, whether it was the stop motion stuff, you know, the behind yeah. the scenes stuff, um, or whether it was getting into Woody Allen, you know, it's mm-hmm. like all of it was, it's just what I gravitated toward. Yeah. And I think that that is one of the things that is fascinating because, uh, when it comes, cause there's plenty of filmmakers and writers and, and, and directors that, uh, that, make art that looks inward and it looks at itself and it's kind of you could say it's meta mm-hmm. or just a, or just in general like a meditation on what art is uh and the relationship between the artist and the audience those can and all be so sort of tedious thing. they can be but they can also be fascinating to me mm-hmm. um charlie kaufman does it a lot and his stuff even when it is even when it is tedious which some of his stuff i think is and i think on purpose um synecdoche oh my gosh which I watched only recently, and I loved it. I found it actually yeah. really invigorating. You know, so it's an amazing st- movie. His stuff is very invigorating because it's just like, yeah, I'm going to look inside my own mind, and right now my mind is looking inside my own mind, which is <laughs> right. looking inside. You know, I mean, just mm-hmm. and when you do that, I mean, you just you don't know where you're going to end up. And this is this is going to sound very pretentious. This whole conversation is probably going to sound very pretentious. We're talking about Woody Allen. It's pretentious. Ex- there, there you go. <laughs> pretentious and uh, navel gazing. Yes. Um. And so, but I feel like Woody Allen is somebody who does it really well, because if there's one thing that he is, it's uh, self-aware. And as an artist, as a, as a very self-aware artist making films about art and about filmmaking and films in general, uh, I think he's really good at, uh, if not verbalizing his feelings, at the very least showing them, whether it be visually or metaphorically or whatever, he really... You can tell he loves film and that he he almost, as you're saying, almost feels like he has no choice. It's the one thing he knows for sure. Right. Um, so you, you you know more about Woody Allen than I do. Don't say that. Uh, you do. Okay. You've seen more. There, you know, I'm not building you up when I say that because I don't know much about Woody Allen. Okay. And I've only seen, I mean, he's made 40-something films. I've only seen 12 of them. You know, so for I can, shame, Tyler. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not like I'm going to seek out Scoop. Wait a minute, that's a good movie. Is it? Well, it's not a good movie. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's a good movie. It's a, it's a, it's a fluffy movie. It's okay. Good, it's funny. You've it's got uh, funny moments. It's not to be taken seriously, so you can enjoy it. 
it knows that it's it's exactly what you're talking about. My, you know, it's interesting. My uh, <laughs> that little exchange is to me a very Woody Allen type exchange. It's a good movie, really. Well, it's not a good movie, <laughs> right. you know, just that kind of thing. The word "good" requires some uh, some explanation, yeah. some yeah. unpacking. There's not enough air quotes uh, yeah, to put around maybe. that. Um, but what are some of the movies? Uh, well, just in general, what do you think of Woody Allen's take on art when he? Well, when I got uh, I got to say that I just bouncing off something you said. I think that there, the reason that you, know, you said he does it well, he does this mm-hmm. sort of navel gazing. This let's look at movies, and yeah. I'm a filmmaker. I'm going to look at films. Um, the filmmaking process. He does it well mm-hmm. because typically, not always, typically he his persona cuts the pretension by what you just said, be, by being self-aware, mm-hmm. um, by by him being, uh, uh, putting himself down a lot, mm-hmm. um, putting down what he does, um, all these things. I mean, but, but, but there's a gamut that is run uh, in terms of art uh, mm-hmm. and how he describes it himself in his own movies um there's purple rose of cairo which mm-hmm. is an extremely sweet extremely economical movie it's really well done hmm. have you seen purple rose of cairo no i have not you should see purple rose of cairo you should sit down with your wife and see it it's a really okay a really good movie it's just really it bounces along almost perfectly okay. he actually says um that it's a movie that he feels like he got right hmm. and they're out of all the movies that he's made he says uh when he names him he says match point he says uh, Purple Rose of Cairo. Sometimes he'll say uh, Husbands and Wives. Okay. Um, but there's just this small handful. Among them is is uh, Purple Rose of Cairo. And Purple Rose of Cairo is a great example, of not just being a, great, a good movie, a good Woody Allen, example of a great Woody Allen movie, great movie. But also, he, because of the, the plot, which is screen character comes down out of the screen yeah. because he senses that one of the, the patrons of the theater, Mia Farrow, this is set in the 30s, um, he, he notices she's been to this, been to several showings of the movie and he looks at her in the middle of a line and says, "What? weren't you just here earlier? And he bounces off the screen, carries her away, and it's a, it's a fantasy. Yeah. But it's set in reality as well because back home, she's got Danny Aiello threatening to beat her up at every... You know, every turn. Yeah. Um. He he's you know out because of the depression. He's just shooting dice. You know, every day mm. and just one of those kind of okay. I'll say it. Kind of a cliche, rough husband character. But yeah. Our our the character that comes off the screen mm-hmm. is perfect. That's why she's gone to this movie so many times because she's kind of falling in love with Tom Baxter, the character. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, word gets out that uh, back at the studio, this has happened. That somebody has come off their out of their movie mm-hmm. and is potentially wreaking havoc, murdering people, raping women, <laughs> you know, all this. so they have to do something about it. So they call, they find the actor, uh, whose name I can't recall in the movie, but it's Jeff, uh, Jeff Daniels playing both mm-hmm. parts, obviously. Um, and there, there are several scenes where you've got the character and you've got the guy who created the character having conversations. And it's, it's borne out over the course of the movie that the, the screen version of himself is only what he's built into that character. Hmm. He's he's a sweet guy, you know, he can fight well. Yeah. You know, he stands up for the good and all these things. And so this is what she's responding to and she yeah. falls in love with him in real life because now he's in real life. Yeah. Uh but the real guy comes along and has to, you know, do something about this because it can't go on all over the country. So these conversations that they have are very brief, mm-hmm. but they're very telling about what Woody Allen, I believe, feels about himself Mm -hmm. he's not in this movie he's in a a ton of his own movies but he he's not in this movie in a sense he kind of is because the idea of us having a a conversation about Woody Allen at all what are we talking about are we talking about Woody Allen the filmmaker 
or do we really have the character yeah. of Woody Allen in our head when we're talking about him? They're two different people. Yeah. And so way back in 85 or 86, whenever this movie was made, he was already dealing with the fact that uh, that he he was, by the public's will, being fused into a single entity yeah. that was Woody Allen. It was a Woody Allen character, Woody Allen filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, in, in interview after interview since then, well, even before then, most likely, he staunchly advocates for himself as being his own person. He's not that guy. He's not that neurotic. Yeah. He's not, he doesn't sit around reading Schopenhauer. <laughs> you know, he sits around watching the Knicks, you yeah. know, and drinking a beer. So yeah. he says, um, I find that hard to believe, but that's just because I bought into the character. Right. So much. Right. Um, so the move, that movie is probably the best example I can think of that, that has Woody Allen, the filmmaker exploring Woody Allen, the character. Yeah. Um, now, even though the, even though the character is not in it, even though the character's not yeah. in it, which, may, which, in a sense, kind of helps you to think that it's a better movie. Well, I mean, the more obvious choice would probably be uh, uh, Black and White, uh, Stardust Memories. Yeah. Because he is the filmmaker in that movie. He's in the movie. He's a filmmaker. You know, there's a lot going on in that movie as well yeah. that we can talk about. Have you seen that one? I have. And uh, and it's actually, uh, I mean, you and I have discussed Woody Allen before, and uh, I, I like him. I don't love him. Um, I think I think he's made a few masterpieces, um, and frankly, if you're a filmmaker that has made, let's say, more than two mm-hmm. uh, masterpieces, uh, you're a good filmmaker. I'd sure. say uh, a great one, maybe. Um, but uh, but I recently, my friends and I have a, a weekly movie night, and there was a night when we had a we watched three Woody Allen films. Now I wasn't there for the first one because I had already seen it, um, and it was I had. It was Annie Hall. Okay. Um, and I had, and I had somewhere else to be, so that I said, like, hey, move Annie Hall to the front so that I, so that that's the one I missed. And then it was uh, Manhattan and uh, Stardust Memories that we watched. And I remember those two movies uh, right in a row uh, kind of, uh, I wouldn't say they soured me on Woody Allen. He's still an amazing filmmaker. But they really, Stardust Memories especially, uh, really got me thinking about... Uh, Woody Allen the man and uh, and his relationship to art and more specifically the audience right uh, because and, and it was very cynical and very uh, in my view vaguely mean spirited um, because but it's but the thing that I that I've thought of since then uh, that kind of almost lets him off the hook with me is that frankly if you are an artist of any kind um, whether it be a director or an actor or whatever, and you're in the public spotlight, you're going to have a very tenuous relationship with the audience because they are going to demand things of you. And because after a while, you they feel like they own you. They right. own a part of you. And you are going to develop a certain degree of uh, maybe resentment towards mm-hmm. them that they only... They don't want what you actually have to give they only want the part that they like and so if the time ever comes when you decide to go into an, in another direction creatively and follow your own instincts uh and you go somewhere they don't want you to go they can be remarkably uh unforgiving well we should talk about what what uh what he did you yeah. know what 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 muse he followed yeah. and how he sort of called it all upon himself yeah. I mean, think about it. He he made, classically, you know, he made five uh, just straight-out comedies. Yeah. Uh, spoofy, 
uh, Vignetti, if that's a word. Yeah. It's a very Italian movies, I guess, Vignetti. Yeah. Um, and then he made Annie Hall, which was a brilliant step forward mm-hmm. in that the movie still is kind of a spoof in a way of movies because of the, the various, you know, you got the cartoon part. Yeah. You've got the fact that he's talking to the audience. You've got all these sort of very interesting filmmaking techniques used that he might have used in some way previously in yeah. these broad comedies. Annie Hall is a natural step forward. Yeah. What does he do right after Annie Hall? He does interiors. He does interiors, which is yeah. like the diametrically opposed. And and a uh, reference in many ways to another filmmaker that he loves, which is Bergman, Ingmar Bergman, correct? I'm sorry, who? Yeah, Ingmar Bergman. Sorry. Yeah, what did I... I was playing dumb. Oh, okay, yes, thank you. Yeah, he, I, I mean, he, he talks about how back in the 60s, mm-hmm. 50s and 60s, when Ingmar Bergman movies would come out, well, not just him, but like when the French New Way was happening and mm-hmm. all these uh, Kurosawa movies, when all these movies were coming over, he was like, he recognized that America wasn't making movies like European filmmakers, Asian filmmakers. They, they, they just weren't doing it. Mm-hmm. They weren't being honest and true with what life really is about, according to him. Yeah. And so he took to these movies, and these are the movies that uh, sort of fed him. Mm-hmm. As he's becoming a budding filmmaker back in the late 60s, as he's writing scripts that are made by other people mm-hmm. and plays that become movies directed by other people you know he's uh he's he's realizing you know i can do this i'm going mm-hmm. to be doing this who who am i going to emulate well i mean he's got a lot of influence marx brothers for one bob hope for another that never yeah. gets talked about really um and so he kind of follows that muse for a while well at some point he i guess in his bones he feels like he has to do this thing his timing couldn't have been worse yeah. i think because uh, what he did so well with, with Annie Hall and then Manhattan, which if you hopscotch right over interiors, there's Manhattan, yeah. which is kind of a, some sense, kind of a retreat back into, oh, okay, you don't like this. But not, not a full retreat back into kind of the, the, for lack of a better term, goofy comedies. Certainly but, not. But back to Annie Hall, certainly. It's it's funny because it's like, a, it's like okay, I'll do, I'll do interiors, I'll put jokes in it, and I'll make it black and white. Mm-hmm. And I was, so I'll, I'll still have my kind of European thing happening. Yeah, I say that kind of derisively, but but I think that might be what was going on in his mind. I don't, I can't really speak for him. Don't ever want to speak for him, but I can assume mm-hmm. um, because of the pallid, you know, reception of of interiors, which is mm-hmm. just icy, bleak, no yeah. jokes, austere, mm-hmm. all any synonym you might want to think of too. Oh, indeed. You know, that's what it is. It. I haven't seen it. So okay, um, it's 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 actually a good movie. No, I'm sure it is. When you look I have back no at it, but I can imagine. Uh, my imagination goes to like if I'm a fan of Woody Allen. Yeah. At the time, I know him as a stand-up comedian. I know him as a, an, a comedic essay writer. You know, I've seen Bananas. I've seen Take the Money and Run. I've seen Love and Death, which is brilliant, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen Play It Again, Sam. You know, the movie that was based on his play, and now it's a movie. Yeah. Um, I've seen all these movies, and and I've seen Annie Hall, and I loved it. It won an Oscar, for goodness' sake. It's got to be good. Yeah. And then suddenly, there's nothing like that. All it is is I want to be Bergman, mm-hmm. you know, and that's you watch it and and you if you're familiar at all with any Bergman films, post uh, Seventh Seal, including mm-hmm. Seventh Seal, then you know that that's what he's doing because of the, the shot design, uh, just everything about it is mm-hmm. the the fact that there's three sisters and all this are two sisters and how I forget, but mm-hmm. just everything about it just screams Ingmar Bergman, yeah, and there's no nothing wrong with that really. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, I mean any filmmaker who's reached the level that he has re- had reached by that point. Sure. And especially if he's getting financing that just keeps rolling in and mm-hmm. there's nothing stopping it really. Why not do what you want to do? Even if that's like this incredibly diametrically opposed thing that everyone expects from you. 
And what's fascinating is that the reception by the audience and even by certain critics, um, the reception was so generally poor for interiors that he went back to making Manhattan almost to get, I think, maybe back on people's good side. One would think. And then... Because I don't think he could do Stardust Memories immediately, because then it's like <laughs> it's like, well, that's a little too reactionary. Yeah, but he did it. He did it after uh, Manhattan, and uh, and it's interesting because he does that one in the style of another filmmaker, which is Fellini. Exactly, and uh, he just can't learn his lesson, can he? Or maybe I think he might have done it defiantly, hmm. as if to say, like, oh, okay, you don't like this guy? Okay, I'll do this. Yeah. What do you think of that? Oh, and I'm also going to portray you as all jerks and idiots. <laughs> Um, exactly, and so it is a it is a, a a film that immediately I've just felt insulted personally, um, and he has a, even a little bit of that in Annie Hall. Uh, now that I think about it, with the I'm standing uh, out here with two guys named Cheech. Is that what it I'm is? Standing here with the cast of The Godfather. Well, when he's waiting on Annie Hall at the beginning, and I, I think I, so. I, well, yeah. isn't there a shoot? It's been so long since I've seen it. Yeah, isn't there, there's a part where I think characters are uh, two characters are talking about. Uh, uh, what the author of a book, I think, or maybe the director oh, they're of a standing film. online. At is the, that what uh, it is? I say online because that's the way they say it. I would say in line. Indeed, yes. Um, standing in line to see. Uh, now I forget, but while he and Annie Hall are standing in line, mm-hmm. the couple behind them, the man in that couple, is pontificating about the latest Fellini film. Okay, yeah. And how it's like, uh, you know, it doesn't hit him in a gut level, so it gives Woody Allen all kinds of opportunity to say, "Well, I'd like to hit this guy on a gut level." Yeah. You know, basically, it's a very funny scene. Yeah. Um, but he's he's essentially making fun of kind of himself in a weird way. Maybe. Because he might be likely to say those things about the latest Fellini film. Yeah. So wh- wh- where does he get off, you know, like making fun of this guy? And he, and there's also an interesting, uh, his character is very similar in uh, Manhattan. There's a lot of those of people just constantly debating about art and their own yeah. interpretation of it yeah. and all that sort of thing. Um, and I do want to, I want to stay in this subject but move on uh, a little bit because... Uh, one thing that I, I I feel like I've I've miscalculated. I feel like I probably should have saved the discussion of art until the end of the show, but uh, because that is usually where Woody Allen arrives. Hmm. He usually goes on a journey of some kind, whether it be a relational or sp- or philosophical slash mm-hmm. spiritual, only to arrive at art hmm. and film. Uh, that is the end of his journey, and so we I stupidly approached it as if it was the beginning but it's the beginning and the end with him is what's fascinating um because he's because he's examining it through art and arriving at the very thing that he's using to examine these things navel gazing you could say that sure um, i did but uh but he's one thing that i really like about uh some of his l- later films films the last 20 years uh <laughs> is that uh sometimes he you know like uh in a film like bullets over broadway and then, uh, well, I'll, I'll go with that one. What I like about that one, and it, it's a fun movie. There's a lot of fun characters, a lot of fun performances. And it's just a, it's, it's a very agreeable movie in a lot of ways. I really... It, I was watching it just the other day, and yeah. it reminded me of the pace and tone. Not just because of the time. It's also set in the 30s, but, mm-hmm. or maybe 40s. But it's, uh, it's, it's very similar in tone to... Uh, to uh, 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 Purple Rose of Cairo. I couldn't, okay, yeah. couldn't think of the name. The name. I, I had no idea where you had it. <laughs> um, but yeah, the pacing is... It's just a really wonderful movie. It moves. It, it works well. It really does. But in the midst of it, and for those that don't know, it's basically about uh, about a play getting off the ground and mob involvement in that One play. One guy named Cheech, as it turns out. 
His name is Cheech. Is his name is his name Cheech? Not Mister Cheech. Uh, yeah, Cheech. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, and one thing that I like about that is that one actually almost res- almost shows a great deal of respect towards the audience because the playwright, mm-hmm. played by John Cusack, um, is having a difficult time making things work, and he's way too much inside his own head as. Any character in a Woody Allen film will be at some point. Uh, he's weighing, you know, he's just he's constantly questioning himself. And then it takes a guy who is not who has who doesn't really have these ambitions, uh, a mob enforcer played by Chaz Palminteri. Um, it takes him making suggestions, right? That all of a sudden now the play freaking works. It opens wide up, right it, up. It totally works because of this guy who doesn't have the training, who doesn't look inward at all, uh, and doesn't do any of that. It takes his suggestions to really make it work, and that almost that almost uh, is a very this might the ter- the word has become vague, uh, fairly negative, but that's almost a, a populist way of looking at it. It's like you know, as opposed to one may, might say a slightly more elitist way of looking at it earlier, which is you know what anybody can do this right now they may not be able to do it well, but it's not like just because I have training, just because I do this or whatever. It's not like it's a club. Anyone can join this club. Right. You know, you never know where great art can come from. It kind of if democratizes it can, art. It really does. And uh, and he opens it up and finds it, uh, you know, it just I think he's somebody who finds art very freeing. And then as he got older, I think he looked back on his attitude and realized, like, well, it was freeing for me, but I don't think I allowed it to be freeing for other people. And now with this one and the mob enforcer, I'm going to allow it to be freeing to that character. And in doing so, right. I will allow it to be freeing to kind of anybody. I'm not, I can't, you know, it's like, uh, it's like in the movie Ratatouille, you know, <laughs> the idea of anyone can cook. Now the idea yeah. being not everyone can cook like a master, but a great cook can come from anywhere. I'm sorry right. to be quoting Ratatouille in our no, discussion please. of, of uh, Woody Allen. It's a very animated but, discussion. But, I bring yes, it to a halt, don't I? Um, Carry on. But uh, and so that's one of the reasons that I love Bullets Over Broadway is that in the midst of this really fun, uh, kind of goofy film, mm-hmm. um, he winds up making a much larger point about art and one that he hasn't really made before. Well, that but I, I think that I really love. Go ahead. I think it's uh, important though that we. I, I do this like when I look at a, a like a filmmaker's canon of mm-hmm. work. You know, I look at this film, I go, okay, so he grew t- into this. And then, oh, after this, he made this. And that's, so that's so he changed his mind about this. Yeah. Um, I can do that with filmmakers that I don't know very much about. I can assume, based on their creation and what mm. their characters say, that this is where they are. Maybe yeah. it is. But it's, I, I think I know Woody Allen too well from all the interviews I've read, yeah. all the movies I've seen, everything, that to say that he learned a lesson that is counter to Stardust Memories or Purple yeah. Cairo is a misnomer because all you had to do is look maybe five or six movies later at Deconstructing Harry. Yeah. Which is a just a kick in the pants to anybody who cares about where an artist is inspired. I wouldn't say that... Perhaps I misspoke. I wouldn't say that he, quote-unquote, learned his lesson or even changed his mind. I think it's just... He's somebody who, in his exploration of art, the way it relates to the audience, the way the role that the audience can play... I think it's. I think that's where he was in that moment in his exploration, and it's interesting because you didn't really see a lot of hint of that earlier. Right. But yes, in something like a deconstructing Harry, where 
back to navel gazing um, to oh, a certain yeah. extent, uh, to a large extent. Now that Very I think large. about it, um, you know, once he, you know, he's he's back to looking at the artist, which again, there's nothing wrong with navel gazing is a negative term as well, but uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and I'll bring up actually, uh, we can go back to deconstructing Harry in a moment if you like, but um, I'll bring up uh, Sweet and Low Down, right? Because I. I, it's it might be I'd say it's maybe like in my top three favorite of the ones I've seen, which is only twelve of them, but mm-hmm. still. Um, and I like I love that because that film because he again is examining art as again he, he well he's in it as himself as like a jazz expert and and all that, but that doesn't really count because he's not even in his persona. And right. so, uh, but through the character of Emmett Ray, played wonderfully by Sean Penn, which is yes. not a phrase I say very often, <laughs> um, it's he examines the idea that I think he a philosophy that he, maybe he has held in his life that I will only I will only let myself go through my art. In this case, he's a mm. jazz guitarist. So it's like, you know, I don't need to show my emotions. I don't need to really connect with people. The only connection that matters for me is my art. That's the only way I find, that's the only freedom I get is through this, Um, which I think is something that, and when you're saying like, I won't connect with people, I won't show emotions, except through this, what you're really saying is that is the only way I can get an identity Hmm. is through this art. And I feel like it's something that Woody Allen, for good or ill, probably feels about himself. I mean, you mentioned the idea of, him his frustration of like there's the persona and then there's me right but i've put so much of myself into the persona that after a certain point after i'm dead that is me right that's the only me that's going to exist and it's really kind of a kind of a creepy thought when you when you think about it but but with uh emmett ray you get this guy who who thinks all these things about putting himself into his art and only that um and then by the end he yells out i made a mistake because and, and he finally uh, lets go emotionally mm. and is a, and gets a lot more in touch with himself as a person as opposed to himself as an artist. He's already very well aware of himself as an artist. And then it goes back to these series of interviews and everyone says, like, after a certain point, he did some of his best work. And mm. it's the idea that the more you know about yourself and the less you view art as, for lack of a better term, a crutch, mm-hmm. like the only way, as long as you're not... Like, if you idolize art and make that the only thing about you, then you're only going to reach a certain point. But if you really kind of invest in yourself and invest in other people, then, oddly enough, it's not that you won't have anything left for your art. You'll actually have more for your art. Right. And it's a really, that to me is a really fascinating uh, theory to put out there. And it's one that I, that I actually, at the time, and even even more so now, was kind of surprised to find hmm. from a Woody Allen film, but I think it's uh, I think it's an incredibly well done film. I have this constant conflict when I'm talking about Woody Allen, the movie, and Woody Allen the filmmaker because I I, yeah. I read I mean every year he puts out a movie so it's a slate of interviews mm-hmm. and in in those interviews you can read pretty much what you read last year yeah. for last year's release. Um, yeah. He talk he's, he he downplays his own intellect. Mm-hmm. He downplays the movie. He downplays. Uh, the reasons why he made the movie, he downplays uh, his um, his own talent. He says his talent is luck. Mm-hmm. You know that's all it is. I got lucky. Now and and also on top of that, he's he he will 
he claims that he never sees his movies again, like after he's finished editing them. Hmm. Um, it's just a kind of an almost surrealistic kind of thing to say about yeah. <laughs> about your own body of work when you've made that many. But but his his mo, if you will, is that he 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 says that he needs making films, the the act of making films to distract him from his overarching you know preoccupations with it, which are you know death. Yeah, he says, um, and the other things that you see as a as sort of a theme throughout his movies. So whenever I hear someone say, yeah, um, you know, there's this element of like art and his relationship with the, the artist's relationship with the, with the, uh, with the audience mm-hmm. and it changes over time and stuff. I, I, I kind of recoil to that because you can, you can find that in the movies, but you can't find that in the man. Yeah. And it's intensely frustrating. Um, Every single year you hear these same things. It just sort of dismisses everything he just did. So it almost, if he heard you say what you just said, mm-hmm. he would go, oh, okay, whatever. But, yeah. but that's whatever. I didn't, didn't, I don't know that I meant that. Yeah. I don't know that I even thought of that when I was writing the script. I just sort of, but uh, the truth is that's that in itself is kind of telling because it's, oh yeah, you know, what you dismiss is almost as important in analyzing somebody as what they embrace. Yeah. Um, and he's he's dismissing things that other people would say he's embracing mm-hmm. by oh my gosh look what the act what the uh, what the artist did in this movie yeah Isn't, that must be the way you feel but yeah. he himself doesn't feel that way about his own art by what he says right or does he I don't know if he's not even watching his movies again yeah then you think well there's he just doesn't place any value on what he's doing that everyone else seems to be enjoying it's kind of just kind yeah. of a bizarre surreal way to live as an artist and it's and it's you know that contradictory kind of nature that uh, that we were talking before uh talking about before that uh, that you'll run across with creative people that you feel you definitely feel the need to get this message out there but you're not sure how much it's like well i'm putting this message out there but i don't it's not like i have it figured out or anything so right. who am i yeah you know and so well um, he's anything if he's if he's anything, he's an artist who asks questions. He does not answer questions. I'd say that's about right. He yeah. asks huge questions, and he ponders them in all kinds of ways over the course of 40 years of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, I don't know that he's ever offered a single answer. There are some that seem like answers, but then again, when you hear other things the character says in the movie or when you hear him say something about that movie, mm-hmm. it completely undercuts everything that you thought he might have meant. Yeah. A great example is, um, I hope I'm not jumping the gun, but I felt like you were probably thinking about Hannah and her sisters earlier. Mm-hmm. The, uh, where the end of the road is art. art. Yeah. Um, you know, he would say, just in the context of what we're talking about, we, what he would say is that, yes, you know, I was concerned about death. I was mm-hmm. concerned about the end of my life. I, I realized that even though I don't have a brain tumor, I'm still going to die someday. Yeah. And he's despairing about life, even though he's just been given more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so cut to, you know, he's walking down the street thinking about all these things, and he ducks into, <laughs> odd choice of words, um, he ducks into um, a theater that's playing Duck Soup. Yep. And he is, you know, he's he can think about the movie, you know, and, and g- gain some amount of joy from just watching how much fun they're having yeah. in that movie. And then, but you, I mean, that's sort of the end of the, well, it's not the end of the movie, but the end of the movie is a happy ending where he finds Diane Weist and they become yeah. married and all this stuff. So it's kind of a weird happy ending, yeah. but it comes out of this uh, this idea that he's found real life or real happiness or truth, if you will, yeah. in an old Marx Brothers movie of all things, which is a beautiful thing because it's simple. 
Yeah, and it's and it's purely a comedy. It's not like the Marx Brothers were trying to do something deep with that film, which right. is, might be exactly the point. Um, and his, the end of his arc in Hannah and Her Sisters is, to me, like the perfect, I'm about to transition into something, is, to me, the perfect uh, conglomeration of all of the themes that he explores, which is mortality, right. love and relationships, and art. Exactly. And the way that his his struggle with his own mortality led him to look for any number of answers and he eventually got to to art and and movies specifically and that his embracing of that kind of opened him up to like a human relationship whereas right. if it if it wasn't um if he hadn't found that he might still be so concerned about his own mortality that he couldn't open up to another person um but we will be talking about those in a moment. I think I want to take another break. Okay. And when we come back, we'll talk about uh, the two other themes that uh, Woody Allen explores. So uh, stay tuned. Great. again hello there i i enjoyed that no i didn't i enjoyed the bumper music but i was thinking <laughs> i was thinking that it should have been some jazz music yeah now, I, I realize that it, it wasn't my friend hasn't some made clarinet it. music or some cole porter woody allenish yeah that's fine but my friend hasn't uh, written any jazz music so this is get on it friend this is what we have get on it um but uh so okay uh, we we want to try and pick things up here a little bit. Uh, I'm perfectly okay with uh, how much time we spent on that topic because it is one of, to me, one of the most fascinating things uh, that an artist can do is talk about the nature of art and all these other uh, facets of it. So I'm I'm fine with that. But uh, but we do want to try and pick it up a little bit uh, with these next two uh, themes that Alan uh, really likes to explore. Uh, and so the first one. Is is the l- most obvious? Is the most obvious? He's, I mean, he's made a, a lot of films about this theme, or in w- or at the very least, in which it, uh, you know, plays a big role, uh, and that is love and, and relationships. I would say, right, and um, more specifically, probably the the inability of any human being to actually achieve a lasting, satisfying relationship with another person in a romantic yes. context. Which is a very cynical way of, of looking at it, not from you, but from him. Right. Um, but at the same time, I mean, it doesn't seem as cynical to me now as it did years ago. Tell me about it. What do you mean? Because, you know, when I was young and perhaps a bit more idealistic, and because my parents had been married for 30 years before my dad, and still would be if my dad had not passed away, or at least I, I'm fairly certain they would be. I mean, okay. if you make it 30 years... I think you could probably make it another 40. Sure. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, not another 40, another 10 or 20 or <laughs> I however. I said sure to the absurd. Long. Yeah, exactly. That's fine. So, um, so because my parents uh, were married and stayed married and, and the parents of a lot of my friends were the same way, uh, I would look at that, that attitude of Woody Allen's and think like, well, he's just being cynical. That's really, come mm. on now. 
But since then, of course, I've met other people and uh, who've gotten divorced or have had affairs or whatever. Uh, you know, relatives of mine have been divorced. Uh, and then I myself got married. And <laughs> here's the thing. I don't plan on getting divorced. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen. But marriage, I've been married for over five, uh, five years now. And uh, it is uh, very difficult. Exceedingly difficult. I mean, it's worth it. Sure. But it's... I mean, a friend of mine was asking me, like, hey, uh, is marriage... Uh, he said, is there anything that you thought was going to be hard but actually turned out to be kind of easy? I was like, um, <laughs> no. He goes, oh, okay, is there anything that you thought was going to be easy but turned out to be hard? I'm like, ah, uh, yes. <laughs> he says, is there anything you thought was going to be hard that turned out to be harder than you thought? Yes. Wow. And so, like, it's... I'm just glad I got married before this conversation. It's, it makes it sound really awful. But in my view, it's really no different than anything that is remarkably rewarding. I would say, like, parenthood or pursuing a certain dream or, honestly, uh, Christianity. Christianity is very difficult. It's, right. You know, it's difficult to put into practice. because, And I don't mean just like, oh, well, I'm not supposed to, you know, get drunk. Not even that. That's, that's, exter- that's external. And thus, for some... Maybe a little easier, but literally it's like I'm supposed to show this person patience through and forgiveness and everything. Right. That's incredibly difficult, but you know, it's, it's a uh, lifelong commitment. It really is. You know, at the hopefully. end of which you hope there is something better. Yeah. A lot like being a Woody Allen fan. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Please let there be something better than small time crooks. And there was, we like small time. I know crooks, we just talked though. about this. Yeah. Why did you pick that one and not, uh, whatever, whatever works. Oh, wow. Well, as we talked about, whatever works, actually, because it is a guy spewing forth so much, there's a lot of Woody Allen in there Yeah, um, that might or might not be worth talking about, but we may have already talked about it. Yeah. But something like uh, Curse of the Jade Scorpion, you watch it as a fan even, and you're going, what an abysmal heap that was. There's only one thing I, I laughed at in that movie, which was uh, Woody Allen's blind informant, and uh, it's just the delivery of a line where... Uh, the guy says, like, he goes, he goes, I, and I think he's British? And he goes, he goes, Mr. So-and-so, look at, look at this. And he goes, he goes, James what? James Mason was in the movie? That's my British That's accent. great. That's and a great so, James Mason. <laughs> Mr. Allen, look at this. And so, and then, uh, my, my, by the way, my James Mason is Eddie Izzard's James Mason. So I'm doing an impression of Eddie Izzard doing James Mason. Anyway. Well done. Uh, so he says, he goes, Mr. Allen, look at this. He doesn't say Mr. Allen. He goes, look at this. He goes, what is that? And he goes, it's a clue. <laughs> and he just says it with such anticipation that yes. it's like a five-year-old. And I laugh out loud when I, when I think of that. And uh, nothing else about that movie. Uh, it was really not a good movie. But um, that's neither here nor there. Yes, uh, it is not. So Woody Allen's attitude towards relationships, it is both cynical and yet still remarkably hopeful. I think, and towards love in general, because I, well, uh, without, before I elaborate on what I think, what, uh, what did, what do you think about that statement? I think that, uh, cynicism seems like the right word. Okay. Um, I think that this is going to sound condescending to virtually anyone who, who, uh, you said that there are a lot of non-believers in the audience. Okay. I just feel like that he, that he has had no... Exposure toward uh, exposure to the kind of relationships that actually do last, and the reason that the 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 relationships last that he might have come in contact with 
or maybe not, mm-hmm. are that way because they have slowly uh, been put through a fire, like you're talking yeah. about. And they they are their relationships that are forged in the mundane mm. and forged in uh, the the not fluffy moments. Yeah, you know all of those things that uh, you know that that are hard about relationships. Um, is what he, he he catalogs some of these in his you yeah. know just the inability to communicate properly and um, you know somebody might know somebody else of the opposite sex and that threatens you and all these things yeah. are kind of typical human things yeah but there's a there's a boy I, the way I set this up is awful because I, I don't want to imply that atheists can't you know people that don't believe right. in God don't have real love yeah, of course yeah. they do but what I'm saying is that a person who is inclined toward not believing that there is a love that can last, that yeah. does last, inconsequential to your existence, mm-hmm. which is what we believe, then that person has no anchor. They ha- they don't have anything to look at that says, okay, this, despite yeah. the fact that things are going horribly bad right now, um, it's it can get better because look at that yeah. perfection there. I want that. And yeah. I can only get that by marching through this. I say all this, you know, I haven't had a lot of like deep relationships the opposite sex with in my life, and I've mm-hmm. only been married six months, mm-hmm. so um, I'm sort of talking out my butt a little bit. Okay, can I use that phrase on a family That's, podcast? Go ahead. Okay, good. Um, I'm not uh, slow down. <laughs> I'm not sure if I would say this is a family podcast. Uh, I can't think of any uh, a dysfunctional you know, family podcast. Janie and Johnny, I don't think, uh, <laughs> at a, you know, are going to gather around the pot, uh, the iPod. Guess what? Janie and Johnny might have seen bananas. That's about it. Uh, fair enough. Yes. Yeah. So I don't think they've listened to the Jade Scorpion. They, no, and they, maybe small time crooks. They tuned out at the at the name Harryhausen. Oh, fair enough. So, I think we're in, in good company by now. But but because they haven't seen that love demonstrated mm-hmm. in their, or I should say, Woody Allen. Again, yeah. I'm speaking for him when I shouldn't be. But it seems to me that he's when he writes a scenario where there is love and then there's ache and yeah. then there's separation. Uh, what he, I, off the top of my head, I can't think of a of a moment when he actually considers that. Maybe this will make it better. Mm. Maybe after we're through this moment, you know, there'll be even better, mm-hmm. you know, uh, love afterwards. You know, I'll yeah. know what love means more. It just seems like I'm, I'm again off the top of my head. I can't think of any. I'm sure that there's some examples in there. Um, maybe those lessons are learned like after the fact. For instance, in back to Hannah and her sisters, mm-hmm. um, Michael Caine's character goes off the deep end. He has a relationship, a, a sexual relationship with his, wa- with his wife's sister mm-hmm. because it's what he wants to do. Yeah. He has this back and forth in his own mind. Am I going to, am I really going to throw away something as good as Hannah? I think I'm going to try it. Yeah. You know, he doesn't realize exactly what he's giving, giving up until the end. The same thing happens with, if I can bring this up, um, Anthony Hopkins in uh, You Will Meet a Tall Dark Stranger, the latest Woody Allen movie that's been released, okay. which is good and bad in yeah. the ways that many others of his are. Um, but he learns the lesson as well. Spoilers. Anthony okay. Hopkins learns a lesson, <laughs> but he learns it too late. And uh, his wife has moved on, hmm. or his former wife has moved on. Um, and so there's there's always sort of the, it comes back around to like, okay, so love hurts. Maybe I should should have stuck with it. Yeah. You know, now I'm learning a valuable lesson about my non-Hannah life. You know, of course yeah. he comes back to Hannah, so yeah. and she never knows, which is kind of awful in a way. Yeah, but we know yeah. the audience, and it's you know, 
because I yeah I I, I agree and I, I, I want to really try not to make a, a generalization about oh well of course uh, anybody who does who isn't a Christian can't possibly achieve this because uh, there's that statistic that uh, more Christian marriages end in divorce right than it goes the other way you can yeah. you can see the example and still screw up as a human being absolutely there's, there's no, no question way. about it and in fact you will yeah. maybe not in that way and I think there's I think also just in in a modern culture. Uh, whether you're a Christian or not, there is kind of a, it's a very, I'm sorry to be this guy, but it's a very consumerist culture, which literally is, uh, the minute something stops pleasing you, get rid of it and find something that will. Um, And that can include love. It's the idea of patience and forgiveness and trust don't enter into it. You know what I mean? And so, and and I think, I think uh, Woody Allen's, his character's neuroses when dealing with someone he's in a relationship uh, with, um, I think that reflects a lot of the uh, neuroses of uh, the culture, which is I'm going to screw this up, and when I do, she's going to leave. There's no trust. There's no trust there. Right. You know what I mean? And I'm somebody. I mean, I'm very neurotic, and there are moments when I'm astounded that my wife has stayed with me, <laughs> and yet I've not. I've not learned any lessons from that. I mean, I'm married now, so I know she's not going to go and divorce me. That'll be a big hassle at the very least. Sure. Um, Expensive. Oh, I will make it so, and I will make it so <laughs> difficult. Um, but, uh, but I remember when we were dating, I always felt like the other shoe was going to drop at any moment. That mm-hmm. she was, that yeah, she loves me, but that's just because she, no one better has come along, you know. And that's wow, a very yeah. untrusting attitude. Um, and it, and that's it's fascinating because, to somebody who's very neurotic, it's like no, no, no. You you don't understand. It's about my foibles, and it's like. Yeah, but I can, But your your you know your partner can still take it remarkably personally because I'm choosing to look past your foibles and you're acting as if I'm not right. You know, mm. and so there's there's like a lack of trust, and then of course when that person hurts you, as they inevitably will, there's no pay, there's no grace. You know, to put right. it in Christian terms, um, because the 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 thing about being a Christian and accepting God's love is accepting grace, which I still have a difficult time doing, but it, I do too. Accepting it and and acting as if as, as if uh, it's a real thing in your life, uh, constantly reassessing, constantly like, oh, what's going to happen now? Um, but it is there, the the love and the grace and and all of that, and so it does. Forgiveness can, in some people, inspire uh, a desire to be better and to. It's like, oh, God forgives me, so now I feel like I should earn His forgiveness. And of course, you can't, strictly speaking. But you want to aspire to. Well, wow, He's really. If He loves me this much, I want to try to be something that is lovable. I want to try and and. And it, and it doesn't come out of obligation. It comes out of just being grateful right. for that. And so I, I'm glad that you brought up that, that idea because if you take – again, I know plenty of, of atheists that have great relationships and have had marriage, marriages that have lasted for a long time. Careful, Tyler. I, I, I try to hedge. Sorry. <laughs> um, but uh, – but yeah, I mean, honestly, like God's love for us is a wonderful thing to look at and try to aspire to. And you're never going to. No way. But 
but at the very least, you have a nice a model. And, of course, the model made uh, very specific through Christ. Um, and so I think, uh, and it's odd that because that brings up to me uh, the thing that can never be achieved but always be hoped for and always be worked towards is is why I mentioned earlier the idea that I think his his attitude towards love and relationships is both cynical yet hopeful, mm. but maybe not in the t- in the way it should be, because I I do th- I agree I I do think that he feels that you know uh, this is never going to work. I mean this 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 kind of pure love is not possible. It cannot be achieved by people. But I'm still going to try. Mm-hmm. And th- but the problem is, of course, characters will, whether they're the Woody Allen surrogate or otherwise, characters will, you know, have an affair or something because they're looking for love elsewhere, looking for love in all the wrong places. Uh-huh. You wrote that in your outline. I did. Um, outline? Yeah, sorry. I'm uh, Spoilers. letting people see behind the curtain here. Um, and so, like... So there still is that attitude of like, well, I'm going to keep looking for love, but it's like, ah, oh, but, and, and often what is interesting, excuse me, what is interesting is that characters do kind of learn their lessons. Right. Even, even if they've already had an affair or left their wife or whatever, it's almost always a man. In fact, I would say it is always a man. Is that correct? That has left someone else? Yes. Oh boy. Testing my knowledge. Sorry. She of the ones I've ten. seen, it's always a man. It seems like it's always a man, yeah. Okay. And so, and then of course... That's regrets. probably wrong, for sure. But Maybe. But, uh, and then of course the person almost always regrets it for for some reason or another, and then goes back to the family unit. Um, and so I guess, and, and decides to make a go of it, you mm-hmm. know? And uh, like Michael Caine's character realizing like, oh my gosh, what have I done? You know, and in a way you're like, oh, he's never going to get caught. But it's like... Yeah, but I my guess is he's going to be a much better husband now. Hmm. You know, so there is kind of that. I know it's it may sound kind of terrible and maybe lets him off the hook a little bit. But uh, you know, and and I will say we mentioned small time crooks. That actually is a marriage that works. There you go. And they're committed all the way through. There's no talk of an affair. They get mad at each other sometimes, but they work through it and then just actually have what seems to be a very genuine love and affection for each other. Right. Coming back to, you know, basic reality yeah uh, we uh you know a, a story has to have conflict so the conflict in so many woody allen movies is okay a guy leaves his wife or leaves his girlfriend or what have you so i mean it's going to be a pretty boring spate of movies mm-hmm. if they're all about you know a guy who's already learned his lesson yeah you know so i mean there's a i guess we have to be careful not to not to think that woody allen thinks this way necessarily all the time it's right. just it's a it's a dramatic yeah you know, construct you know yeah. and he's he just likes that construct, boy. <laughs> Every movie practically seems like. Yeah, it's it's something that he uh, does find dramatically uh, satisfying. Isn't the right word, but compelling. He finds right. it dramatically compelling and wants to put it out there. And and as such, yeah, I mean that is it is very difficult to separate the art from the artist, especially given I hate to say this, what we know about Woody Allen's choices romantically. Yes, and I was going to say that reminds me of something I was going to say a minute ago. We talked about like, oh, an atheist can't have love; doesn't know the mm-hmm. ideal form, whatever. Yeah, whatever you want to say. Well, he's been in a committed relationship. You know, it's know. a little creepy when you think about it, but yeah. how it all happened. But he's been in a committed relationship for like a dozen years now, thirteen years, whatever it is. 
And longer than that. Longer than that, I think. Well, he's been married to her since, I think, 97. But, of course, the relationship started in 92, 91, somewhere in there. Yeah. Right around the time that, you know, Mia Farrow stopped showing up in his movies. Yeah. That's when it happened. You can look at your uh, IMDb list. Yeah. Figure out when that happened. And it really is uh, interesting because uh, I saw Manhattan only recently, but the idea of him being with a much younger girl and all that and finding that uh, strangely satisfying for him. Uh, is something that he was telegraphing long in advance of when he actually did that. Well, absolutely, but uh, that that's a, tr- a kind of a tricky movie to talk about because he yeah. he says that he's uh, if, we're, if we're in the context of like love relationships and lack yeah. lack of finding good ones, he's he claims that he was trying to still claims this that he was trying to show like the uh, the moral bankruptcy of an entire class of people in New York City. Hmm. And so this person will cheat on his wife doing this, this person will do this, and Woody Allen's character will do this. But because Woody Allen's character is so, um, to use your word, agreeable, yeah. you're just, you're, he's the only one with funny lines in the movie, really. Yeah. Only one joking. He's Because of his size and his, he seems like he, he's somebody that needs to be taken care of almost, yeah. he's very, uh, you know, you have s- some level of affection for him and what happens to him. So he's the hero of the movie. The hero of this movie which we also psychically connect to his real life or what we think his real life is. Yeah. He's in a relationship with this young girl. He says to show the foibles of, you know, the upper class, you know, yeah. what what they feel like they can get away with. But but the problem with the movie is that he he makes it look kind of okay. Yeah, it and really seems like, him, like a hopeful ending. And you want him. Yeah, it does. It's very uh that last shot of him oh, I think the, the kind of the older I get and and I guess the more I learn about marriage relationship, the mm. more I, I look at a lot of his movies and go, I don't know why I didn't see that about this or how just disgusting that behavior is until yeah. now. Yeah. It just it's like the last six months. I've just really kind of, I, I think I may have even mentioned. Oh, I'm sorry. I should give credit to you. You should. You mentioned having Woody Allen as a subject mm-hmm. um, many months ago. It might have even been before I was married back in April. I can't remember, but there was a, a, a like kind of line of de- demarcation between. Like, kind of being oblivious, okay, accepting that, okay, there's going to be a lot of infidelity in his movies, too. Yeah. Now, I see just how treacherous a move that is for anyone, fictional or otherwise. It's just, yeah. This is horrible, and it's in every movie. So, but I look at uh, Manhattan, and he is, he claims that he's trying to make a comment on that behavior, but he puts himself in it, and it cuts, undercuts the yeah. the impact of his statement when you're kind of rooting for a guy yeah. in a way, in a weird way, to get with this very young girl yeah. and to stay with her. And the very last shot of the movie is his expression, like, sort of like, you know, she's leaving. I can't believe she's leaving, but I guess that's life. Yeah. You know, and you're supposed to connect with that in a way that is bittersweet, yeah. and it should just be bitter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And Mariel Hemingway, as Tracy in that movie, is... is Probably great performance. Most, great performance. One of the most compelling, probably the most compelling character in the movie. Yeah. Because she's so starkly innocent. Yeah. And and uh, but still very surprisingly wise. Right. Um, and you think she's going to, because when you first see their relationship in the film, you're like, Ugh, yeah, I don't gross. like this. And then as time goes on, you're like, well, she certainly is compelling. I mean, you met, yeah. you know, the, the word you used. She really is. There is something there. I mean, she's attractive. She's smart more mature than he is in so many ways way more mature than he is so it's like there is something there no question yeah but she also is in high school (laughs) yeah she's in high school and uh the first time he's ever dated someone wherein he could beat up her father i think he says somewhere (laughs) in the movie um but that last the 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 last shot of that the last moment of that movie has really kind of gotten under my skin over the last 
several years, and especially yeah. now, just because of yeah, all kinds of stuff. But he's it's a, it's a great movie. But yeah, and it's uh, yeah, his, it's it's one of those things. Um, on Battleship Pretension, in an, an earlier episode, we discussed the idea of can you even separate the art from the artist? Okay, because. And I remember we, we spoke in terms of Woody Allen, Roman Polanski, Whoa. and Mel Gibson. Yikes. Because it's one of those amazing things where Mel Gibson, when Passion of the Christ came out, a lot of people said like, oh, this is anti-Semitic. And I, I'm not a big fan of the movie, but I was like, well, I don't really see that. I mean, I guess you could. I mean, if you're looking for it, I guess it's there. Right. But I don't, I wasn't looking for it, so I didn't see it. Hmm. And then, of course... A year or two later, he right. had the run-in with the cop in which he said horrible anti-Semitic things. And immediately you're just like, okay, well, I I guess <laughs> retroactively, I guess it is anti-Semitic. I guess yeah. there is something in there. Uh, maybe unconscious, but it's there. And I feel like, and it's like, well, now I can't take that out. Th- I can't take that out. I can't look at the film on its own. And I feel like a lot of Christians have distance themselves a little bit from the movie it used to be like they used to champion passion of the christ right all the time and then once he started going crazy they're like ah shoot. maybe not yeah it can still be a powerful movie that's fine um and i feel like the same is happening with woody allen i mean you look at michael Caine's character and the way he talks about uh in hannah and her sisters and the way he talks about his sister as opposed to who he's with and right. then you look at uh, his relationship with mario hemingway in uh Manhattan and knowing what he's done now you look back and and all of a sudden those films and those characters take on a dimension that you're like ugh now I don't really know what he thinks right does he hate himself for what he did you know like in his real life I don't know cuz he certainly I, seems to I don't to believe be, he does yeah and I believe that he he he's aware enough that he's done something that a lot of people hate him for yeah and find completely, thoroughly, ethically mm-hmm. incorrect to do. Um, but uh, I think that, like he says, oh my gosh, in Husbands and Wives, which is a... Talk which I've about, never seen. You, you should see that. That's, I, that one I really that's, want that's, to, yeah. That's like the core movies that any fan should see. Okay. For sure, because it, it takes a lot of the, the same themes as Hannah and Her Sisters. Well, clearly, he has the same themes in every movie. But the yeah. same kind of idea, but... Uh, you know, splitting up, you know, relationships splitting up mm-hmm. um, and the effect that it has on people or doesn't have on people. It's it's really a brutal movie, yeah. um, emotionally speaking. Um, and the the fact that in that movie, which was made in, what, 98? Nine, which one? Uh, oh, Husbands and Wives is like 92. Yeah, yeah, that's like it's, 91, It's 92. interesting to think that that movie came out uh, right about the time that all the split was happening. And in the movie, he's a professor of literature who has a student named Juliet, you know, the actress Juliet Lewis. Mm-hmm. And he, she falls in love with him. And he has to spend the entire movie sort of like trying to tamp that down hmm. a little bit. Um, almost, I mean, this was being made, obviously Mia Farrow's in the movie, so yeah. it hadn't all broken open yet. Um, but it's almost like a, a preemptive salvo, if you will, un- unconsciously. Because he kisses Juliette Lewis at the end because she asked for a birthday kiss. And he says, I can't really do that. Look at our, you know, our relation. I'm your professor. And he conventions about it for a bit. And then he kisses her anyway. Yeah. So he kisses her, but he refuses to have any kind of a relationship with her. And it's interesting that that movie comes out 
when it maybe he maybe he reshot the ending, hmm. you know, after the fact. I don't really know, but I mean, cause he does tend to reshoot a lot of stuff. Hmm. So maybe so I need to read up on that. But but it's just a, interesting that he does factor in the things that he does and the compulsions that he has, the desires that he has into his movies through his character, which he claims is nothing like himself. Yeah. So it's it's just constant. What do you believe and what do you read from the movie as true? Um. So I think we, we need to move on because already we took way too much time on this topic. I guess I should have expected that. Oops. Um, to uh, the the third and, uh, in my opinion, final uh, theme that he just keeps uh, returning to. Um, and I f- and honestly, I feel like uh, I feel like you've seen more movies. That Don't deal leave us hanging. This. What is it? I'll give it, get to it in a minute. <laughs> You're milking it. But I feel like you've seen more movies that deal with this than I do, so I may not have a lot of things to weigh in with. Okay. Um, which is I'm the, not sure that I do, but carry on. The theme of morta- death and just mortality, our own death, mortality. Death, mortality, the, the, uh, the role of religion yeah. as being a salve for said obsession of death. Yeah. You know, that, that from the very beginning, from his, uh, his stand-up material, a lot of, a lot of it, mm-hmm. um, the stuff he wrote in these essays, you know, just kind of played with the idea of death all the time. Just, uh, one of his plays is called yeah. Death, for goodness sake. Um, he uses it. It's an amazing thing. It's just kind of an elastic yeah. kind of theme because you can make it funny. Yeah. We've seen death made funny in brilliant movies and bad. Dr. Strangelove is yeah. all about imminent, you know, world-wide yeah. death, and it's very, very funny. He does the same thing with uh, with movies like the aptly titled Love and Death. Yeah. Um, where at the end of the movie, he's just basically traipsing off with this white robe death. Hmm. You know, at the end, he gets carried away. Um, he's upset about it, and he tells the uh, uh, Diane Keaton character that, of course, this is this kind of puts a crimp, crimp in his evening. But he, he does it seriously, and he but then he goes the exact opposite extreme and everything in between. But the exact opposite extreme in movies like like Matchpoint and Cassandra's Dream, and before that, uh, kind of the the ultimate in the in the subject of at least murder, mm-hmm. death. You know. Murder by murder by death is that isn't that, isn't that a, a movie title? Murder by death. Murder by death. Yes, is a uh, Neil Simon thing. Neil Simon, who was cohorts with Woody Allen, yeah. back in isn't that odd? Well, they were all they were all in that yeah. same room making Mel jokes. Brooks was there and Carl, uh, Reiner, Carl Reiner, yeah, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, Larry Gelbart. Yeah, they, amazing. Yeah. It must be fascinating to. I wish they had recorded it. Like uh, like uh, the Nixon th- uh, tapes. They just had a recorder running all the time, and we had access to those tapes. I bet it was hilarious. Missing 18 minutes of Woody Allen joke. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, but but the elastic nature of uh, because it's an obsession with him since childhood, he says that from childhood he realized he was going to die someday. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's 75 years ago when he was born oh, as, wow. of, as of this year. So he's been obsessing over death since it was a long way off. Yeah. And now, of course, it's not that far off. Let's hope not too far, but um, I mean, farther than he thinks. But um, there's a moment in deconstructing Harry. It's like a, a demonst- like w- one of his story, short stories, kind of is presented to us, mm-hmm. filmed, and uh, death is portrayed as just doing his job, you know, just knocking on the right door. But the r- but there's a guy posing as the owner of the apartment because. Yeah. Because um, he needed it as kind of a bachelor pad sort of thing. So he takes, yeah. takes on his name. He's in the apartment. He can't disclaim the fact that he's this guy that death is there for. So it's a very funny yeah. um, treatment of something that he actually, you know, is extremely distraught over. Yeah. I mean, you look at I think I think when you watch Hannah and her sisters, the way that he he uh, 
presents himself as a character is probably the way he really is on the subject because of because he I mean he talks about it obsessively. Yeah. He he dwells on it in in all kinds of ways in all his movies. But when he when he's telling uh Julie Kavner, who's his coworker in that yeah. movie, that you know, remember remember last week when I, I thought I had a spot on my back? She says that was on your shirt. You know, it's a great joke, but it's also kind of kind of plays into he looks for death in everything. Yeah. And he'll use it as a as a you know, a subject matter in any way he can. Yeah. Um but crimes and misdemeanors, as I was about to say a second ago, is, is sort of the ultimate treatment in 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 death. Well, you know, I got to back up a little because it's not really death; it's murder specifically. Yeah. And getting away with murder, mm-hmm. and uh, is which God was later echoed almost exactly in uh, Match Point, and again in Cassandra's Dream. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, Cassandra's Dream is is a, uh, I think, as good as Match Point. It gets less press. Hmm. When people are talking about it, because Match Point came first, and it was like the first good movie after, a, you know, yeah. like several five or six kind of kind of lame movies. Yeah, that's true. Yes, you're looking now, aren't you? Yeah, it was after Melinda. Melinda, anything else? Hollywood ending. Yeah, <sighs> rough rough patch. Yeah, let's call it that. But but Match Point comes out, and it's like this brilliant essay on on social climbing. You know yeah. what you what you're willing to do to get to where you want to go. Yeah. Um, Doing that thing, and then hopefully getting away with it. And luck, you know, the main character in that in that yeah. movie, you know, there's no no such thing as faith, like yeah. there is in Crimes and Misdemeanors, which is all over that movie. It's like, you know, what what do you believe in? Do you believe in a a universe that is ruled by a just God mm-hmm. that will, you know, seek, you know, punishment upon you or wreak, wreak punishment upon you for the deeds you do? Mm-hmm. Or are you in the world of Match Point where the main character sort of almost offhandedly says, yeah, I believe in luck. Everything's luck. Yeah. There's no God. Um, and then he gets really, really lucky and gets off at the end. Yeah. You know, gets gets away with murder. Um, so kind of a similar ending, but definitely different yeah. different packages. And the, yeah, and I mean, with Match Point, I mean, what does that tell you? The main character believes in luck. Mm-hmm. And if there was a just God, the theory goes... He wouldn't be allowed to get away with this, and he gets away with it uh, completely, totally. completely. And um, and so, like, oh well, then this character must be right, you know, hmm. or not. I mean, it's just uh, believing in luck is a very interesting, uh, very interesting philosophy. But uh, it's like being superstitious. It's like a misplaced, it's misplaced faith. Yeah, if you think about it. If you think about it, listen to me like I'm the first one that said that. <laughs> if you think about it, uh, you know, I really think uh, I've really turned a page here. I've, <laughs> I've enlightened you. Uh, so, OK, um, we got to start wrapping up here because we're at two hours now. Probably but, so. Uh, but uh, I did want to mention uh, one of his recent films, which is interesting to me because he wrote it, you know, decades ago at this mm-hmm. point. Uh, but. Made last year, right? Which is whatever works, yes. starring Larry David, um, and it's it's fascinating to me because uh, in in Hannah and her sisters, uh, it is Hannah and her sisters where he. I always get his story mixed up with crimes and misdemeanors. Hannah, Hannah and her sisters is when he goes on the journey. Journey. Yes, yes. He goes on the journey. The uh, oh yes, various uh, philosophies. Right. And he thinks he's got a brain that. tumor. He doesn't. Yes, yes. But it still makes him realize yes. death is imminent. I need to fill it up with fill up my life with some meaning. Yes. And then winds up in movies. Yes. Um, 
in that one, it's it's interesting because the humor comes not from the religions that he's looking into, but his reaction to them <laughs> and his general almost innocent lack of understanding of right. them. And that's where the humor comes from. What I have seen of Whatever Works, which admittedly is not very much at all, but you've seen it, and what I've read about it and what, my, and what friends have told me about it, so I apologize if, if I'm speaking out of turn. I'm willing to throw it to you as, as quick as I can. Um, he, he deals with religion very head-on in that, in that film and in that script. Um, and I was thinking, like, well, you know, hey, he wrote it. You know, who knows if that's what he really thinks? He wrote it 30 years ago. But it's like, but he did make it now and did not make a lot and made a few changes to update it, but but didn't change everything and certainly didn't change that stuff. So it must be what he really thinks uh, about religion, that it is. I mean, we mentioned superstition in regards to luck and uh, the word superstition gets thrown around a lot in Mm -hmm. regards to religion by honestly by the atheist that I don't particularly sympathize with. Hmm. Um, it's one of my least favorite things is when someone just uses that term to dismiss something that, uh, like I, as a person have devoted a lot of time and thought into right. and have read a lot about and all this. And then someone in one word can say, it's just superstition. It's like, right. thanks. That's really nice of you. That but doesn't help. It, it really doesn't help, and it really yeah. doesn't add to the conversation. So, uh, yeah, listeners, if you're an atheist that does that, please stop it. It's really disrespectful. Um, but anyway, so, uh, but we were talking about luck as a superstitious belief in whatever. Um, but, I, you know, I have no doubt that, that Woody Allen, especially in a film like Whatever Works, uh, he believes that religion is, is superstition. Oh, um, absolutely. But, but you've seen the film. Well, uh, I saw the film when it came out. I saw it in the theater, and then okay. I saw part of it the other day in my mad dash to see as much as I could in okay. the last couple of weeks. Um, so I saw the first 20 minutes of it, and frankly, um, it will never be called by me one of my favorites. It's just, okay. it's just n- not because it's poorly made or anything like that, but because it's a shrill example of things that he's sort of meted out. Mm-hmm. You know more, uh, you know su- more subtle, subtly mm-hmm. in uh, in other movies, and it's just sort of, it's like this compact. Let's let's put it all. Maybe I mean if if it's true the fact that most of it was written thirty years ago, that makes sense in a way because everything he says in that movie and whatever works has been said in some other way later with more art. Mm-hmm. Um, this just seems almost like a like a one man show that's been no. put on celluloid, and it's like let's just make him the most vitriolic, bitter, yeah. angry guy that we can, and he yeah. he spouts off against any kind of relationship, uh, yeah. much less a, a god human relationship. And it's certainly, I mean, and, and a lot of the reviews that I've read have said that were negative reviews said that the characters' uh, vitriol and, and bitterness and anger kind of comes from Larry David's playing of the part and mm. that it, the character was originally written for Zero Mostel who, who would have made it a lot more uh, lovey-dovey and yeah and would have ex- really made this guy much more of a uh, curmudgeon it's like well I don't agree with him but eh, he's a delight everyone likes old Zero oh absolutely I love his name <laughs> but uh, but yeah and it's and, and again this is based only on what I've heard but in regards to something like mortality, it does seem to play a role. Even in the short section that I saw, uh, it does seem to play a role. It's like, hey, you know what? Life is short enough, and you're going to have another enough crap in it that you might as well just do whatever works exactly. for you. 
and it's fun. Whatever you can do to get eke out a little bit of happiness, go right ahead. And it does seem to be couched in this idea of mortality that, hey, you never know when it's going to end, so you might as well do what you got to do now. Now, of course, I myself get frustrated by the attitude of like, hey, whatever works. It's like, oh, well, what works for me is religion. Not good enough? Okay, fair enough. Right. So what, you know, I I don't mean to make this a a complaining kind of thing, but, uh, but this, this, the screenplay does kind of reek of something that a younger person, uh, would write, you know? I agree totally. But, uh, but yeah, but it is, it's an interesting philosophy, uh, and an interesting, and in some ways, maybe a slightly more freeing and less, uh, his execution of the theme of do whatever you got to do to make you happy in the in the long you know in this life uh that philosophy i don't think the execution of it is very good but the theory itself is something that you really in my in my view you wouldn't expect from woody allen you know a guy who kind of fusses and frets over mortality all of a sudden accepts mortality accepts his own mortality and says okay now whatever you got to do well it's a very existentialist you yeah. know that word existentialism. Yeah, it seems kind of passe in a way because it's been used so many times to describe so many things. Yeah, but that's a very existentialist mm-hmm. core core belief in existentialism is just that because there's nothing else out there, because there's nothing beyond death, mm-hmm. life and what we find in it is good. Yeah, you know, or it can be good. Yeah, um, and we can derive some level of of enjoyment or passion or even fulfillment out of it no. so um so that i mean that movie fits right into that very very existential sort of idea yeah um and i don't i don't see how that's that's not an aberration from many of his movies mm-hmm. and sisters being one of them um where there's angst there's turmoil there's hand-wringing there's kvetching yeah to use a word that may better fit him yeah um there's all this stuff but but ultimately there's there's a there can still be fulfillment in the few minutes you get with, you know, this love relationship. Yeah. You know, and so, I mean, I don't think he ever discounts the, the joy and fun and and uh, fulfillment that you can get out of a relationship. He just constantly tells you that, yeah. that it's fleeting. Yeah. That it'll, it'll, it won't be there forever. Yeah. Love doesn't last. It fades. Yeah. All of those things. Um, and so maybe in his older age... Even uh, I forget how whatever works ends. I know it ends sort of on an upbeat, doesn't it? Sort of a. I, I didn't see the end. Oh, that's right, you didn't. Yeah, I gotcha. saw the beginning. Yeah, in that case, I I guess we can't really talk about it because yeah. I, I don't recall it, and you never saw it. Right, and and uh, yes, and uh, a film, a film is about how it ends, in my view, which is one of the reasons why when people say, "Oh, it's a very th- great statement." Yeah, I mean that's when you know. I mean. It's one. It's one of the reasons why when people say like, "Oh, some dog millionaire was so depressing," and I was like, "Yeah, I guess it is," but it doesn't end depressing. It ends with them all dancing in unison. Yeah, and it ends with this guy getting the love of his life. And yes, his brother has has died. Spoilers, but uh, he sacrificed Whoops. himself right. for his brother's happiness. So even there, there's even a little bit of hope there. It's a very hopeful ending, and thus, in my view, a very hope, hopeful movie. And the hope wasn't tacked on either. Well, here's a twist for you. Watch um, out. Do you mind if I spoil You Will Meet a Tall Dark Stranger? Go right ahead. Awesome. Um, if you've spoilers. made it this far in the par- podcast, you may have already seen the movie. Okay. Spoilers. Yeah. Woody Allen spoilers. This is weird. I know. Who cares about the end of the movie? <laughs> um, but at the end of the movie, uh, I, I alluded to 
Anthony Hopkins earlier. Yeah. You know, he goes off. He says, uh, I've, I've, I've basically, I'm done with you, wife. Yeah. You know, in, in a nice way, but he basically breaks it off and leaves her kind of high and dry. Her comment directly after him leaving her is I, something akin to, I, I don't know how to, I don't really know anything about life that isn't connected to him. I don't know what yeah. I'm going to do. That's not what she says, but that's the, that's the idea. So what does she do? She she does what I think Woody Allen thinks is a good thing, mm-hmm. which is she she starts to lean on the advice of a clairvoyant that is oh, okay, set yeah. up by her daughter to uh, go see this woman. She can help you out. So she does, and she finds, uh, you know, from her perspective, this woman's perspective, um, a lot of stability, mm-hmm. the stability that she is missing because her husband has left her. No. Well, she, uh, it kind of, kind of, takes a dark turn when the things that she's being told she should not do because the planets are in a certain place in the universe no. is, uh, for instance, don't help your daughter who's in an incredible, incredibly terrible financial situation or just needs money to get to get something started, yeah. and she really needs this to happen. Why don't you help her? Well, my my psychic said I shouldn't do that. So what, what Woody Allen kind of gives this character, is kind of cruel, mm-hmm. gives this character an out, but then rips it right out from under her by... By well, actually no, because she ends the movie thinking that she's doing the right thing. But we, the audience, are led to to believe that this woman has kind of gone off her nut, yeah, a bit because she's not helping her own daughter in an, an yeah. hour of need. So, and I think that in this movie, the clairvoyance, the psychic, all of that stuff is in Woody Allen's mind kind of lumped together with religion, right? Superstition, whatever it is, um, even luck, yeah. you know, as something that is kind of ridiculous to put any kind of faith in. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that all all you can really do is rely on yourself, um, whatever motivates you from the inside, um, to, to lean on somebody else is kind of ridiculous. Yeah. Even if it's somebody that you've been married to for 40 years or whatever. Yeah. You know. And that's, yeah, it's, he's a really, he really is an interesting filmmaker. And, and this is going to sound kind of strange, but uh, he's a filmmaker that, the themes that he explores, and in many cases, not all of them, but in many cases, the way he explores them reminds me of another filmmaker that I like a lot more, which is Mike Lee. Okay. Um, I know that may sound strange, but like in both cases, uh, it's I mean, it's always character-driven, dialogue-heavy, and all of that. But there are moments of humor, and there are moments of drama, and there are moments where. You know, characters make a lot of the same decisions uh, where it's like, oh, I guess I sh- maybe I should maybe I should go with this person. Maybe I should go with this person. Like they deal with they deal with death and, and mortality and all these mm-hmm. other things. Uh, and so I for some reason, I always equate the two of them partially because um, did you see Happy Go Lucky? No, I did not. In fact, okay. uh, I've seen some Mike Lee movies, but I'm not. I don't know him that well, okay. or his, most of his movies. Um, yeah, and I've only seen a f- I've only seen maybe five or six myself. But uh, but in Happy Go Lucky, and of course uh, we did an episode on this. Uh, I recall in, with uh, my friend Bobo, and um, and what's fascinating about is Robert. Th- that is, yes, his name is Robert, but I, we call him Bobo, please. And uh, and if you're not careful, I'm going to call you Bobo. No, all right, don't do it. But uh, that character in that scenario really, to me, seems like a very Woody Allen esque kind of thing. Hmm. But um, but yeah, it, it is interesting because there is a lack of there's a certain lack of analysis in Mike Lee's films. He's much more willing to just let the characters be, hmm. and we can extrapolate what we can from it. But he's not going to he's not going to do it himself. He's much more 
fascinated with these characters and refuses to reduce them. Not to imply, of course, that that's what Woody Allen does. Right. But sometimes he does, you know. Um, he doesn't do it all the time, but sometimes, whether it be the director or the character, will will like look, sit back and look at someone else dealing with these things and kind of comment on it, thus sort of distancing himself from it and, in my view, maybe putting himself above it a little bit. Um, but... Uh, as a way of, of wrapping up, his his exploration of these themes is something that I personally b- believe Christians should watch because the way they're all wrapped up together, love and human relationships couched mm-hmm. in uh, a constant awareness of the fact that we don't have a lot of time. And then also in art, I mean, art could be any number of things. For him, it's art and and film and music and all these other things. But it could just as easily be any passion that a person has, you know. Right. The, the thing that that spices up your life, spices up, you know, whatever romantic relationships you might have, whatever friendships you might have. And just it spices up living. And sooner or later, it could actually become your reason for living. And there's nothing wrong with that. Whatever works, you know. <laughs> um and so just the way that he refuses, I mean, we have kind of compartmentalized the themes, but the fact is they all flow into each other. You could almost take any movie at random with a dart yeah. and talk about all three themes. Very much so, yeah. And so the way they all flow together uh, is, to me, there's a certain messy quality to it, but in doing, but also an incredibly organic quality to mm-hmm. it. So I feel like if you're a Christian artist, you definitely should watch a, you know, any number of his films. Um and just look at the way he he explores art and the way it relates to humanity. But, uh, but just from a Christian point of view, even if you're not a Christian artist, I think you can benefit a great deal from these films. Sometimes, this might sound a little condescending to non-believers, as a cautionary tale, you know, you can look at... I think about that a lot. You, you can look at his characters and recognize why they're making the decisions that they're making and realize, well, I don't have, you know, sometimes it comes from a de- a, a, the realization is like, hey, this is all the time we have, so got to do what you got to do. And it's like, well, I don't believe that. Right. So now what do I do? What hmm. What does that create in me? You know, because I personally, I won't get into it, but the idea of ex- existentialism saying like, we, you know what, this is all there is. So you should try to make the best of it. Okay, well, why? <laughs> Couldn't I just as easily try to make the worst of it? Like, there's nothing outside, There's nothing bigger than that saying uh, you would do better to make the best out of it. You know what I mean? Uh, you could really go, if this is all there is, there's really no responsibility to humanity, uh, in my view. And so, but that's the thing is we don't have that. We have a hope and we have something that says there's inherent value in life. There's, a, there's value in relationships. And yes, you could go at any time, but your, your spirit, you, your identity is going to go on in some way, shape or form. It could go on living for God, which is like, tr- like real life, mm-hmm. real life with a capital L. Um, or... You could go on living, you know, living honestly like a Woody Allen character, constantly reassessing, constantly looking at uh, the things you've done wrong, the wrongs that have been done to you. 
always forever, which to me is its own version of hell. I mean, that is hell to me. <laughs> um, I've been reading a lot about C.S. I've been reading C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce, which That's deals a great with that book. a lot. Oh my gosh. It's a wonderful book. Yeah. Um, All about death. Among other things, yes. Right. Um, but it is, I've been talking for a minute here. What, what have you... Uh, well, I think that's a, it's a, it's a great uh, uh, ending speech. Uh, the only thing I would add to it is that something actually, uh, when I was talking to Aubrey, my wife, um, this morning about, was that it's interesting that Woody Allen, as, uh, you know, as, as distanced from God as he is, mm-hmm. by his own statements and actions sometimes... Um, he he tackles subject matter that many Christian artists wouldn't want to tackle. Yeah, because it, it because it brings up too many questions yeah. for them. And it's a little it, messy. It, it's very messy, and it's there are no clear cut answers as to why is there suffering in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny. Just this morning, uh, Hannah and her sisters. He's declaring to his parents, his very Jewish parents, mm-hmm. that he's uh, he might go Catholic, and they're kind of <laughs> going crazy, and. Uh, he says, you know, just he's explaining like, well, I have to, I have to have some reason why, why, you know, why there's such suffering in the world. For instance, why, why were there Nazis? And Dad says, uh, his Jewish dad says, I don't know why they're, why they're Nazis. Uh, I can't, I don't know how the uh, can opener works. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and just to kind of branch off of that, just very, very briefly, is that that's one of the things that really drew me to Woody Allen is is the fact that he has his eye on very deep, troubling things yeah. and wants answers, but he's able to couple that. Almost all the time, yeah. in some way, with a very humorous twist yeah. that kind of makes it something that's approachable, and I, does and does not make it, and does not make it irreverent. You know what I mean? Like I there's a certain so. yeah. there's a certain way of like like oh well we can joke about the Holocaust and who cares if it, if anyone's offended? That doesn't seem to be his attitude. No, he just sees some of the humor in the way he approaches it and the way somebody else might approach it and like i i don't know i don't even know how freaking how the can opener works um but he still has tremendous respect for the things that he's being funny about right which is one of the things that makes him a really amazing filmmaker but specifically as a writer i mean he's just able to do amazing things right for for good or bad i mean over the course yeah. of like 40 m- movies 40ish yeah. movies he's uh he's he's uh worn these things on his head yeah you know every single year so i mean these are clearly things that he's that he grapples with still yeah. to this day and uh would would i as a christian filmmaker would i want to make a movie that's so demonstrably against um that 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 shares the opinion although it i'm assuming that my movie would probably you know declare itself for the other side yeah um but at least offer the the other side yeah. like woody allen does yeah i mean he m- more often than not mocks the other side yeah has jokes about the other side belittles the other side but in a weird way he's still presenting the other side in a in a respectable way yeah. because it's a good actor playing that role yeah of the good whatever that good might be um he gives them all the time in the world to be who they are yeah. then he cuts them down <laughs> you know to size to yeah and and to me like uh, the character uh, that is played by sam waterston in uh right. crimes and misdemeanors who is a rabbi mm-hmm. and of and thus you know a great deal of faith in god and all of that and he winds up going blind, which is a little on the nose, frankly. There is that, yes, but it, but it doesn't. He doesn't become embittered, you know. It doesn't. 
because he has the moral structure in his mind. He keeps referring to the moral structure. Yeah, there is that. Yes, but also it's just it's something, it's something bigger, and and the fact that the character, while. I don't know. It's you. At times, you feel like ah, Woody Allen's kind of mocking this character, but I don't think so. Like, the character is a, is viewed as one of the only positive characters in that film. It's true. So, so yeah, he does have. He may not understand religion. In some cases, as you say, he may mock religion, might judge certain aspects of religion. But I think, in some ways, he is a little bit. This might be a stretch. He might be a little envious of it. Can I answer that? Okay, go ahead. He absolutely is envious of it. Okay. He's been asked many times, why do, you, why do you have the world viewed that you have? In fact, I've got it written down here somewhere. It says, uh... Oh my gosh, look at all those notes. Yeah, that I never looked at. Um, uh, uh, why do you have such a dark, a dark world view? He says, this is his quote, I don't like it, but I don't know what to do about it. Hmm. Which is an extremely telling and wonderful quote. Yeah. I don't like it, I don't like the way I believe. Yeah. There's nothing I can do about it because there's no way that I I don't have the capacity. He gives all credit to people who have faith yeah. when he talks about it. Maybe not in the movies, but when he talks about it, he says, I wish that I had the capacity to believe what I know that person believes yeah. because I know that that's giving them all kinds of happiness and security in this world. Yeah. I can't bring myself, like any atheist would say, I just can't bring myself, if they even care to think about Mm-hmm. You know themselves versus you know the possible existence of God. They might say, "Well, maybe there is, but uh, there's no way on this planet in my life with what I know, am I ever going to believe in that?" There's just no way. Yeah, I whether wish... it be willfully or just like I can't yeah. get over these obstacles. He says, "I I wish that I could, yeah. but I can't." He says that over and over and over again. And you know what? I can. I think part of the, the reason that I'm I'm drawn to his movies is when we talk about all kinds of things. There's all kinds of reasons, but. He's funny for one thing. Yeah. Um, but it's the fact that he has doubts and he's not afraid to say that he has doubts about yeah. all this stuff. It's almost more of an ag- agnostic stance than yeah. it is atheistic stance because he he almost feels like, it almost seems like half the time, like maybe there is a God. I just mm-hmm. can't believe in him. Yeah. Which is kind of agnostic. It's kind of atheist slash agnostic. I don't really know. Yeah. But um, maybe I don't know what I'm talking about, Tyler. No, it's fine. But you you just really kind of hurt for him because yeah. when you watch movie after movie after movie that grapples with this and comes out on the side of I can't believe yeah like like uh we could we literally it's funny how how little we've touched on crimes and misdemeanors but we could literally talk for this long mm-hmm. as long as we have on just that movie yeah. because it 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 answers all these themes that the yeah. conversation at the end with the mo- where they talk about movies like what if we made this into a movie well you'd have to have this to make it work mm-hmm. all that stuff is there and he gets let off the hook. You know, there is no God, yeah, according yeah. to what happens to that character. He's got free. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that at some point in his life he had real, true convictions. Yeah. Based on the conversations he had with his parents and his yeah. family that we see kind of played out in that one scene where he goes back home. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's just uh, it's fascinating to me and wonderful that we have a filmmaker, Woody Allen, who is okay with constantly bringing up these subjects in an obsessive way and trying to find some answer, not finding it necessarily, but presenting it to us. You could, uh, what if you slapped, what if you didn't know Woody Allen made Crimes and Misdemeanors? Yeah. uh, And you found out later it was a Christian that made it. I was like, oh, wow, okay, that's cool, because it kind of shows that, you know, sometimes people do get away with terrible things. Oh, yeah. But, But just because we know it's Woody Allen's movie, we, okay, yeah, he definitely believes there's no God, you know. Yeah. But I don't know, there's just, there's just some. There's a way to look at Woody Allen that I I think that I've always looked at him as somebody that I can watch 
enjoy for all kinds of surface reasons, the humor, the incredible wit, um, but also look at as a, as almost like a, what would I do if I could make a film that was on this subject? Would it be much different than this? Yeah. I would hope not. All right. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. I hope so. Here's what I will do, though, real quick. Do. A few movies that we recommend for Woody Allen. Ooh, good call. Um, I will go, f- I'll go first. I will say Annie Hall. Given. Manhattan. Another given. Hannah and her sisters. Great. Crimes and misdemeanors. Bullets over Broadway. Great. Sweet and low down. Also great. And match point. Very well done. Okay. Are there any that uh, that you would recommend as well? I have. Did you say Purple Rose of Cairo? No, because I hadn't seen it. That's right. I will say that one because that's a very brilliant movie. Okay. Um, I I can't believe that Zelig has not come up in this conversation. Uh, which I yeah I haven't seen it. You got to see it. I I, I would recommend Zelig, but. Uh, the ones that you named off, a lot of them are uh, very accessible, mm-hmm. which m- might be why you and others that recognize those movies have seen them, because they are, yeah. are built to be watched and ex- kind of accepted by a broader audience, some of them. But movies that I love, like Zelig and uh, Love and Death, and um, I'm looking down the list. Celebrity is a terrible movie, but I still like it. Okay. And Deconstructing Harry is probably the most, outside of whatever works possibly, but whatever works is a definitely... All comedy, mm-hmm. deconstructing Harry is the is the dramatic ish version of the vitriol that you see in whatever works, and it's yeah. a very hard movie to watch. If you don't watch his movies, if you don't like his movies, don't watch deconstructing yeah. Harry because you will hate him even more. I saw deconstructing Harry in the theater with my dad. Yikes! That was not the thing to do. Yeah, don't do that. I was fifteen at the time. <laughs> it's just a. It's a really. It just makes you feel kind of gross. It does at in the a end. lot of ways. He's so angry at himself. He hates yeah. everybody else. And at the very end, he applauds himself by having all of his characters come and give him like a little toast and like clap for him and stuff. It's yeah. just a very, very self-serving movie. Yeah. But in the in the context of the rest of his movies, it almost seems like it had to be done. Yeah. You know, let let me get this out. You know, this is how I feel about everything, and mm-hmm. I think that I deserve this level of applause from at least my fictional characters. Yeah. Because um, I'm trying to do something with them, yeah. at least. But if you if you like Woody Allen movies, and you like his themes, and you have not seen Deconstructing Harry, it's a very instructive movie mm-hmm. about what he believes. Okay. Um, all right. So, uh, of course, uh, you can always uh, go to morethanonelesson.com to find out more about uh, our guests and to read the blog. And uh, as I mentioned, there is a, a section now where uh, Jason, Josh, and myself uh, rate... Oh, what is that bouncing? Oh, okay. I think you're all right. We we rate uh, the newer movies that we've seen on a four-star scale. We don't write a full review, but just, you know, if you wanted just a quick reference, uh, like, oh, I'm not sure if I want to see this. Let me see what they think. Oh, okay, well. I picture someone on their way out the door. No question about like it. Like, looking at that. Okay, I can see it. Great. Exactly. That's what I'll see. Like, oh, I want to go, I, I go rent Alice in Wonderland. Whoop, never don't. mind. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so you can do that. Um <laughs> And then, uh, of course, there's always the forum, which uh, is kind of, you know, kind of died down because there's not a lot of members, um, which is oh. fine. There's not a lot of listeners. So, uh, but head on over and, uh, and sign up for, for that. It's a good way to give uh, immediate feedback about uh, episodes and all of that. Uh, if you have any questions or comments for me personally, you can go to Tyler at morethanonelesson.com. Uh, and yeah, so thanks everybody for listening. Robert, thank you for being here. This was I a lot of fun. I have thoroughly enjoyed this. I love listening to myself talk. No question about Wonderful. it. Wonderful. All right. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for listening, and uh, we'll get you next time. Bye.